Billy Piper, Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace, now a part of Silver Shamrock Carcast, a podcast network including Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right. You can watch us, including this episode. My, uh, I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hey, everybody. And today it's <laughs> today is our the hell was that? <laughs> today is a special episode. It's our second round table. We'll start off with uh, the author of Hap and Leonard series, Bubba Hotep, amongst many, many others, Mr. Joe R. Lansdale. Say hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Along with the author of Children of Chicago and Into the Forest, all the way and all the way through, Sina Palayo, say hi, Sina. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. No problem. Hi. As as well as the author of Zero Saints and Coyote Songs, Gabino Iglesias. Say hello, Gabino. Hello, Gabino. And lastly, author of Razorblade Tears coming out this summer in Blacktop Wasteland, S.A. Cosby. Say hi, Sean. I'd rather not. No, I'm hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this episode was uh, titled uh, Accept and Rejection. That was created by uh, Brennan. And the concept came up with all four of our guests just talking about basically how they've been through a series of different rejections that we'll get into later uh, in the discussion. So this goes off to whoever wants to start with it. Can any of you remember your first rejection that really hit home? Uh, how did it make you feel? If it taught you anything, whoever wants to go first, by all means. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got a bunch of them in the same day. I didn't get one. I had an, the experience I had was in the seventies. Uh, 
I was 21 and I started writing articles and I sold every one I wrote. I thought, man, this stuff's easy. You know, why ain't everybody doing this? So I decided to switch over and start writing fiction. And that took me two and a half, three years or something like that. But what happened was uh, my wife, I, I worked in the Rose Field, just like my character Hap and Leonard did, characters Hap and Leonard did. And the weather got so bad, I couldn't work. So my wife said, why don't you take three months off and just write and write fiction? Because I know that's what you want to do is try to write fiction. And so I didn't know any better. So I wrote a story a day for 90 days. And God, were they bad. And I started sending them out. And back then, there were so many magazines. You, I, It took four years for me to wear out all the magazines. And you could send, you'd send 90 stories to like 10, 15 places, you know, each. Because uh, they had all of these different markets. And I, I also sent them to some markets that were not the proper market. But I didn't know that. Uh, I was learning as I went. And you had to put the postage in it and the return postage and and all that. So over a period of that four years, I got a thousand rejects, literally. And we used to have them tacked up. And finally, we we took them. I took a few and kept them. And we put them in a box and burned them. And you know, I never ever felt discouraged. I felt mad. I felt pissed off because what? My genius is not being recognized. But then, in four years later, I started reading those stories, and I went, "Ooh, ouch." I would have rejected that shit too. And, uh, but it was an incredible learning experience because my wife said, when I come home, I want to know you've done something. So I didn't know you couldn't write a short story every day. And I did so that I, I, I wouldn't get yelled at, you know, joking, of course. But she was the big influence that made me sit down and get all the crap out of my system. And um, then I started selling and, you know, I got a few rejections and, in later years, like the last few years, I think I've had, you know, three or something like that on short stories. And two of them was because I sent them the wrong story. When I agreed to do it for this anthology, I wrote uh, a story that was not related. So I turned around and wrote another one for them then sold that one somewhere else. So I've been very fortunate in that respect after that time. But I, I, I was getting so many so fast, I didn't have time to feel bad about it. And I've always been confident. And my wife was such a believer in me when I'd say, well, maybe this is not for me. She, oh, no, no, you keep doing it. You, you want to quit? You want, you know? And so I, no, I didn't want to quit. So I stayed with it. But those are the rejections for me. And mostly I just saw them as a learning experience. And for the most part, they were right. <laughs> Anyone jump in. I, I want to hear what any of you have to say. When I first started writing, I was I sent my first story off at 14 years old. And I to, to uh, echo what, uh, what Joe said, I was I started writing when you still had to do the self-addressed stomped envelope. And my mom, God bless her, she used to fuss at me because I was getting so many rejections as a teenager. She said, look, stop. Make sure you're writing this story as well as you can, because we don't have the 35 cents to spend on this self-addressed envelope envelope every time you send it out and you keep getting rejected she said you rushing through it and so i was like okay so i stopped and i would write one story or two stories every couple of months and it would get rejected but the one that stuck with me i had two that stuck with me there was a magazine called midnight graffiti that was a horror magazine yeah. uh back oh. in the 80s and 90s and uh i sent them a story and I, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name. The editor of that magazine, he rejected it. But he sent me a really long personal rejection letter with notes about what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. 
and what he thought I needed to work on. And I remember him telling me, he said, this story is not very good, but you're a really good writer. And I, that always stuck with me. And then uh, there was another magazine uh, that I won't name that sent me a rejection that was so mean and so brutal. And I, 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 I hope they didn't know I was a 15 year old kid. They were just like, oh, this is terrible. You don't have any idea what you're doing. This is just a piss. You need to stop. Don't ever write another story. And I got so pissed. I got, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than a, a pissed off country boy. I was so mad. Yep. And I said to myself, one day I am going to find this person and I'm going to show them that I'm a published writer. And so fast forward 30 years and uh, I get my, uh, I get the uh, Anthony award for uh, grass beneath my feet. And I look up the person and they're dead, damn it. So I didn't get my revenge, but. <laughs> Gabino or Cena? Uh, Cena, you have to unmute. I was mute. Uh, <laughs> The one that sticks with me was the one that told me uh, it was my first novel, which is a, a young adult horror novel. Um, and I still remember it to this day because they said that uh, they wouldn't pick it up because Hispanics don't read. Oh. Yeah. So it was um, it's called Santa Muerte and it's based on the Mexican cult of death and it deals heavily with like the cartels and a teenager trying to solve um, a series of strange murders. And that one just always, and that was actually an agent rejection, by the way. No, actually it was an agent rejection and uh, a publisher told me that too. And so I was just so mad. That's what it was. I was just so mad. I just remember being so angry about it. And I just kept revising it, revising it until I finally, um, it was published with postmortem press in 2012 but they closed um and so right now i'm in the, you know it's it's nice to see the book being rediscovered again and i'm thankful that um i guess i'm, I'm gonna say it i don't know if it's been announced but like paw at thunderstorm books is gonna repackage it as a special um edition that and its sequel and so i mean i learned that how it's being received today, it's definitely not the same way it was received, you know, almost 10 years ago. And so that at least tells me that while it's not my best writing or the type of writing that I do today, a lot of people who have read it do enjoy it and do value the story for what it is. And so, um, of course, I'm still really mad about that, but it didn't stop. It didn't, it didn't stop me. And I think that was the most important thing that I said, well, that's your opinion. I'm Hispanic. I read, I write, and I write a variety of stories that are, that cover a spectrum of cultures and experiences and no one's going to tell me what I can and can't write. And then I also write really sad stories. And so I think that was another thing that they were shocked by was the, the, the entire trauma behind it. But again, it didn't stop me, but I remember, I remember the, the really mean rejections. Well, you're a hell of a writer. You got two uh, intros, one in a book I'm very proud to be in called Campfire Macabre. And anyone that wants to pick up Cena, just, just look at her look at her bibliography. And like I said, Children of Chicago coming out, very highly anticipated, covered by a lot of big uh, platforms too. Gabino, 
Let's hear it, sir. Uh, I don't know who told you that, but they're, but they're, I mean, they're right. Hispanics. I don't read that shit's for nerds. Um, in any case, my, uh, I was, I was, I was in the same boat as, as, as Joe. I, uh, when I moved to the U S I suddenly had uh, markets, I could, I could Google markets and everybody was accepting submissions. So I just kept sending them out. And then, uh, I would come home after class and I would open up my email and, you know, here's you sent out uh, 15 uh, stories last week. Here's 15 rejections today. We're just waiting for you. Uh, some of them said it was horrible. Some of them said it was too weird. Uh, some of them didn't like Spanglish. Um, some of them said nothing. Those those were the, the awkward ones. Kind of like this isn't for us or, or thank you for letting us read your work. But no, thanks. Uh, the ones that stuck with me were um, when I finished the first novel uh, and I started sending it out to agents because it usually I, I i never struggled a lot to get agents to request chapters or the full thing and then i'm i hate waiting so i'm in the wrong gig man because this gig is about fucking waiting and then waiting some more and then waiting faster uh and i would uh, I, I would sit there and i would read those rejections and it always kind of started with this is amazing i can't sell it uh, I really enjoy this story. It's I, I don't have anybody to sell this to, and I was like, "What? Well, neither do I." That's why we're trying to work with you. Uh, can, can maybe we can maybe we can try to figure it out together. Uh, those were the ones that stung, but from from the start, it was this thing where I knew I sucked, uh, and I wasn't angry at some of those rejections. I was angry at the the people who never told me what to do to get better. Uh, when somebody said like, "Hey, you know." This is this is a weak story because I've seen those characters before. I was like, oh, all right, yeah, no character development. Let, let me go figure that out. Um, it was it was always, and I know everybody has mentioned it. It was always the anger, like, all right, you hate that one. Watch me do it better next time. And then, oh, you rejected that one again. Hey, third time's the charm. One <laughs> one day, uh, and then now it's um, it's more about aiming for other places and i also keep writing nonfiction. so now uh now the only ones that that get to me is like if i pitch something that's that's nonfiction or, or send something in the only ones that make me angry are people who don't answer like ever mm. uh and then those get me mad but in the meantime it's just like I'm, I'm here i'm still angry and i'm still trying to get better so uh it's all good and maybe I do read once in a while. Seeing, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Read, yeah. Read back of like you know the taco labels at our place. You know, and I read the books that are there. And so that's our. We have the taco book stand joke. So I'm I'm running it into the ground, but I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> you know, when 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 I was growing up, we were so poor that if it cost cost a quarter to shit, we'd have to throw up. And so I didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money for stamps and things, just like you you were saying, Sean. And and so one, at one point in time, even after I had an agent and uh, my wife was working at the fire department as a dispatcher and I was taking care of, I was a house dad taking care of our kids, uh, which if you want to know what's wrong with them, that that's it. You know, I was taking care of them. But uh, they both ended up doing writing as well. But the thing is, is that I had all of these stories and they were stacked up this high and I couldn't afford to send them out. And I will remember my, my agent at that time was a man named Ray Peekner. He was, uh, I guess what you would call a lower level agent, but a good friend and a good guy. And I guess he could just sense that I, you know, all these stories, he, 
he wrote me and, and uh, he said, what were you doing stuff? I said, well, I got a stack of short stories and I'm working on a novel. You know, I'll try to get you something soon. Next day, or well, a few days later, actually, uh, a box came. And inside that box was a whole bunch of typing paper. And on top of that was a ton of postage. And he said, I had this old postage lying around and I wasn't going to use it. I thought, oh, okay, just lying around postage. And I never forgot that. That was such a good, kind thing to be done. And uh, and another thing is, that, well, Sean said it too, is being a country boy. And, you know, I actually bounced uh, for a living. Uh, I've actually fist fought for money. Uh, I've done all of that stuff. And uh, I just figured, hell, if I could do that, I could I could manage this stuff. You know, I, I can sit at a desk and I had a typewriter then and a manual, by the way. I wrote all those 90 stories on a manual typewriter with uh, a carbon uh, paper that when you got through, you'd take it out. Everything would be slanted and you couldn't read it. And then my manuscripts would have so much white out on them. You know, it, it looked like somebody was like painting a house. And uh, so to me, I, the whole thing made me angry because being poor, I was just pissed off anyway, I think. And not at anybody in general, but I just felt I'm coming out of this. I'm going to get out of this. And uh, so to me, I, I just felt I was going to do it. And um, an, a, another thing, and this goes a little bit with what you're saying, although I'm neither black nor Hispanic, I wrote, I was researched the Buffalo Soldiers, and I researched black Western history for years because I felt like I found all this. Well, wait a minute. I didn't see this in the history books. I didn't see this in the John Ford movies, uh, Howard Hawks movies. I said, what, what is this? These are the guys that actually you know, protected the frontier out in West Texas. I think that was maybe the ninth or the 10th. I can't remember at this top of my head, ninth or 10th cavalry. And I started researching all this stuff. And I just desperately felt like, you know, something needed to be written about. At that time, there was very, very little. And mainly it was nonfiction. And uh, I decided I wanted to do that. So I approached the publisher that I had at that time. And I said, I want to write this book. And I explained to him about the Buffalo Soldiers, Buffalo history, the fact that some of the marshals that were the most famous, like Bass Reeves, they were black marshals. People don't, you know, you know, see them in a lot of black cowboys on, on, uh, you know, the rifleman and gunsmoke when I was growing up. Every once in a while, there would be a black character, but a lot of times they were like, you know, fixing the grub or washing the clothes. And I said, you know, this is a whole area of history that nobody's discussed. And they'd say, well, we black people don't read. And white people don't want to read about black people. And I thought, wow. And this was in the 80s. And then in the 90s, I tried to come back with it. And they had a more, um, I don't know how you would put it, nuanced approach. And I said, you know, this is the book. I said, well, we just don't know who our readership would be. I said, are you trying to really tell me that black people don't read? Is that what this is? Or white people don't want to read about black people? And, uh, you know, they wouldn't admit to that at that point. In the 80s, they, you know, they just said it outright. And then in the 2000s, when I was, uh, you know, I was at, I'm, I'm still there in Mulholland at uh, Little Brown, I brought it up and they said, oh, that'd be great. And I wrote Paradise Sky, which is my favorite of all my books. You know, I, I love that book. And I know there are people that say, well, white people shouldn't write about the black experience or what. And I don't agree with any of that. You know, that's like saying, if you're a black person, you can't write about white people. Of course you can. You know, it we've all had those experiences and it's not a matter of being right. It's a matter of trying to understand each other's culture, trying to understand each other's history. 
And it meant so much to me that that book won a spur, Western Writers of America Award, and that it got so much attention and got the best reviews of my life because, you know, I had every bit of my heart in that. Because, you know, I grew up around black people. We worked together. All of us, white trash, black people, Hispanics, we all worked together because that's where we were in, in the, you know, social strata. That, that's where we were. We had more in common than we did not in common. And I always thought that we always, this whole racial thing is such a misunderstood thing, because if we would understand those of us that are poor, um, that we've got, we take over the world. If we decided, hey, let's quit fighting each other and quit trying to find out what's wrong with the other race. And so these are the things that have been driven, not only in that book, but in many of my books, because I grew up with that. That's the, that's the background I grew up in. And, and so to me, that is what is natural to me to write. It's natural to me to write it because I've seen those experiences. I grew up in the fifties and sixties and I, I don't even want to address some of the things I've seen. I fortunately nothing, you know, no murder or anything like that, but just people being treated wrong, you know, uh, it's just not the way people should be treated as human beings. You know, anybody with any common sense, you would think, would figure that out immediately. So all of that stuff went into my books. And if people think, well, I don't have the right to write about it, I think they're wrong. And I also have the right to write about the white experience as I learned about things. Because when you're growing up in a kid, you don't know any different. You know, I had, I had no idea that there was anything wrong because I was little and this was just how it was. And, and uh, I would go sit on the steps at the feed store because they were still, you know, people were still bringing in wagons with mules to do their plowing because they could carry their plow and, uh, you know, their middle buster and everything in the back of the wagon. So I would go there and to buy comic books. And when I did, there was a whole group of black guys that were sitting there and they were waiting on their seed and feed and stuff like that. And guess what? They were always going to be last. They were always going to be last. No matter if a white person showed up, you at the back of the line, baby. And I noticed that then. But I would sit there and they would tell stories. And when I first sat there, they were kind of nervous. You know, they're thinking, you know, what's this cracker doing sitting <laughs> there, that little kid? But the stories fascinated me. And I stole a bunch of those stories that those old men told because after they got used to me, they would actually address me and tell me stories. And uh, I, you know, I, I just felt like, what, what is our difference here? We're all lovers of the story. We're all lovers of, of personal history. And um, I mean, I know this is going a little bit off, off stern, but uh, you know, I, I just wanted to get that out because that in some ways, of the, some of the rejections I got were related to that. But I, I'm, I'm going to back off of that, off the social issues and go back to one funny rejection I meant to mention and I forgot is that I got Mike Shane Mystery Magazine um, there was a guy named Sam Merwin, and Sam Merwin was an old science fiction editor. He edited a lot of science fiction magazines before Mike Shane, and I sent him a story, and he sent me a note back, and he said, you know, kids, you've got something going, but this ain't it. This, this, this ain't the story, and I said, okay, so I, and I revised it, and I sent it back to him. He said, no, this still isn't it, and uh, I, I have the uh, rejection still. I, I don't remember exactly what it said, but essentially, when I sent it back the third time, 
He said, you know, I hate this story more every time I see it. <laughs> Write something new. And I did. And that was my first fiction sale was the Mike Chain Mystery Magazine. So I'm That out. first sale. I, I was to that first sale after you get a ton of rejections. It's it's like an epiphany. It's like a spiritual yep. hallelujah moment. I mean, this is just to jump off of what uh, some other folks have said. You know, I grew up in a house with my grandmother, my mom, my brother, my uncle, my grandfather who couldn't read, but my grandmother would read to him. She would read true stories and Harlequin romances, and he hated them. But he loved my grandma, so he would just sit there and nod his head and go along listening to those stories. My mom read uh, uh, Greek mythology. Uh, my uncle, my uncle was as tough a dude as you ever seen in your life. He was one of the toughest men I ever known in my life. I seen my uncle hit a dude one time so hard his pants fell down. And um, but he read Travis McGee novels and he read uh, uh, Philip Marlowe novels and 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 Chester Himes and Iceberg Slim and so. That argument, I used to get rejections like that, too, that I would send stories off and, oh, well, you know, so it's a black character, so we don't really know how to market it. Or it's a short story that has uh, a multicultural rate, uh, uh, cast. We don't know what to do with it. And one guy did finally tell me, he said, well, I don't really think black people read a lot. And I was like, you should come to my house because everybody in my house fucking reads. I don't know what you're talking about. But when you get that first acceptance, Oh my God! The first story I ever sold, I didn't sell it. I I I got into a um a magazine for exposure, which you know the vet, the light department, the light uh you know the the light bill doesn't get paid in exposure, but no. it's such a validating moment. You don't even care about the money. You just you know that your name is going to be in print somewhere, and it makes you feel like wow. I'm not wasting my time because I've had a bunch of different jobs. Like Joe, I've been a bouncer. I've been a construction worker. I worked at a, a fast food place. I've sold um, stuff door to door. I've done a lot of different things. I've been terrible at all of it. The only thing I've ever been good at is writing. And so it's like, it's, it's this or nothing else. I don't, I don't have any other uh, options. This is the only thing I really love doing. And so when you finally get that first acknowledgement, it makes all the other rejections fade away they, they fall away like you know like a snakeskin and uh and and it just means so much it i it just is such an incredibly man you really are my, in my case my dad couldn't read or write so you know if when people said you know black people don't read well here's a white person that didn't read because he never learned to read my mother was the big <laughs> reader so you know, I mean, all of those those stereotypes and, and, and bullshit is the stuff that keeps people down more than it keeps people, you know, learning and doing different stories and, and having their careers. Because I'm just like you. I was four years old and I discovered comic books. And I didn't want to do anything else. I never wanted to do it because that's martial arts. And I was good at two things, and that was riding and whipping people's ass, and 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 in a polite way, of course. Uh, but nonetheless, those were the two things that I, that I loved doing. You know, was doing martial arts and training and boxing and all that stuff, and writing. And you know, martial arts. I probably got a couple more years left, but writing, unless my brain goes, it's got a long career arc. <laughs> All right. Um, who, who is the unlucky person to follow up that? You know what? I'm going to, I'll backtrack then real quick. Um, if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to ask Brennan, 
you're a newer writer. I'm a newer writer compared to these guys. You want to talk about your first experience with a rejection? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I, I've been at this for a little over a year now, probably closer to 18 months. Um, and my first rejection came last June or July for something I'd put in earlier in the year. And it was, you know, relatively form letter ish. Um, and, uh, it's something along the lines of, I enjoyed reading it, but it's not the right fit. Please submit again, you know, polite enough for me. I've gotten one or two with that kind of personalized feedback and, I've gotten a fair few with no reply at all, which is, you know, definitely something that I'm interested in everybody's opinion on, um, not to, not to shift away right off the bat, but, um, the, the pub, I guess the, your opinion on the publisher's role as far as, um, sending out rejections versus just kind of letting it blow away in the wind, um, I'm going to come back to that, but, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I haven't had any truly terrible experiences with rejection. Give me time. I'm, I'm going to get there. Um, and you know, we mentioned that first acceptance just kind of outshines everything else. And you know, that, that very first one, uh, it wasn't quite at pro rates, but it's sitting up right there behind me. So, um, all that other stuff. I, I, I don't care about the form rejection and I am willing to overlook the, we couldn't be bothered to write you an email stuff to, you know, see, see my name in print. Patrick, what about you? Not an interesting story. I don't remember my first rejection. It took me six years to get an acceptance. And, uh, last year I got my first pro rate sale and the book I mentioned campfire macabre, uh, macabre, and uh, I took my wife out to dinner and she's the one that got me back into reading and writing because high school, the way it's structured, made me feel like I'm an idiot and uh, books weren't for me, except for The Great Gatsby and Animal Farm for some reason. I don't know why. Love those. They're great. They're, those are the only two books throughout high school, those four years. I was like, I get these every other one. I'll climb the <laughs> Western Front. I, I guess I'm too dumb. Oh, it's a great novel. The hell's I, wrong with you? I haven't read it since high school, so perhaps my mind would change it. You, you're Joe Arlene still. You're going to tell me I, I should read it. I know it, so I'll read it. <laughs> um, I, wanted ask, uh, I wanted to ask uh, Cynthia a question. Go ahead. Because I, I know, aren't you pursuing your PhD or you were pursuing it? Yes. I'm pursuing, well, I, mean, I just need my dissertation. So, how do you, so how, I mean, so how do you deal with like the fiction side of? rejection while you're also pursuing this incredible achievement, which I'm totally impressed with. It's, um, it's a lot of different compartments. So I, and for those that don't know, during the day, I'm also, um, um, a research manager for, um, research consultancy. So I have a day job that's very like analytical and number and logic driven. So that's one part of your brain, math, logic, blah. And then I write at night. So that's the only time I have to write just because my, my mornings are very just concentrated on children, getting them where they need to be. And my job, which is a very demanding, it's a very demanding career. And then my PhD dissertation work. It's funny because I was just talking to my dissertation chair and he told me, He's like, 
my concern for you is that you don't know how it's not that you, you don't have it. It's not that you're not a good writer, like for nonfiction. He's like, my concern is you're too busy. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a very different type of start stop. Like, you know, when I have to sit down and write my dissertation work, it's a very different part of my brain that I'm pulling at versus I'm going to sit down and write a vampire story or something, you know, or serial, a serial killer story or true crime. So it takes me a little bit to get more into that rhythm. And, um, and my dissertation, my dissertation is completely, it's on, um, individuals with autism in the workplace and how we can support them in the workplace. So it's a whole different type of writing and exploration, but I think ultimately it's still research. And I like to embed a lot of research into my writing. So I have a lot of fun with it. Like children of Chicago is just like packed with Chicago history and the history of fairy tales and folklore. So at least I can get really excited when I'm doing my not, and I love nonfiction, like Gabino, Gabino loves nonfiction. And so I think this is a very, it's, it is a very different type of writing and it's exciting, but it's, it's exhausting. I think some days I have to be nice to myself and just say, Hey, just take a break and play with the kids because it could be, it's overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, but you want it. And that's the great thing. And you, you're doing it, you know, and I think that's the difference in writers. I worked full-time jobs. I mean, I did, I did awful, you know, blue collar, you know, just wearing work. And yet I still wrote because I knew I wanted out of that. And it wasn't because I didn't respect it. I grew up in a blue collar family. And I, I, when I worked blue collar, I was making my money doing a, a job the best I can. But I didn't, when I was a child, say, I want to grow up and be a janitor. And that's what I was. And that was not my dream. And I don't think that's many people's dream, to be honest with you. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't have your smarts because you obviously have got smarts to do what you do. I mean, I can't even imagine that. When you were saying that, my head started hurting. And, and, and uh, the fact that you can compartmentalize something like that with something so totally different and, and kids too, because I was a house dad and, you know, I, I was crazy and, and uh, I love doing it. I love doing it. I really did. It was one of those things, but man, uh, I, I'm impressed. I, and, uh, the, the fact that how many you you've done a, your, what was the book? Chicago. What's the name of it? I'm going to write it down again. Ch Children of Chicago that comes out mm -hmm. in February 9th, children of Chicago. And then, uh -huh my two older novels, Santa Muerte and The Missing. And then I have two poetry collections and I can send you the, I'm sure we could send you the names, uh, Into the Forest and All the Way Through and uh, Poems of My Night. And Into the Forest and All the Way Through made the Stoker preliminary ballot. So that was like- Congratulations. People were like texting me and waking me up. And I was like, I was terrified because my phone was blowing up and I was so scared that something happened. And so I saw that and it was just like so emotional because it's, you know, these are my, 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 my fellow writers are my peers and I respect all of my fellow writers and I want great things for them too. And so when I see, when I, to get that acknowledgement to make the preliminary ballot, that was amazing. Um, but in terms of the reason, thank you. The reason why I pursued so much education is because my parents each have a sixth grade education. And I remember my grandfather lived with us. And so he lived upstairs. And I remember when like my grandfather would get paperwork, he didn't know how to read or write. And so we would have to bring the document to him and then he would just write an X on the line. That's all he could do. And I just remember 
my mother, I had this really vivid memory of my mother washing the dishes one day and she just stopped and she showed me her hands and her hands were really gnarled because she, um, she worked in a factory and she said, if you don't want your hands to look like this, I want you then go to school. And so I just always remember it. I have to go to school. I have to go to school. And there was this mania to do as much as I could so I could make her proud because she wanted to go to school, but she couldn't even go to high school because my, um, they couldn't buy her shoes. So she didn't have shoes to go. She grew up in Puerto Rico in the rural forties. So um, I just can't imagine her anguish. Like she couldn't go to school because she couldn't, my grandfather couldn't buy her shoes. So like even thinking about it makes me emotional, but I promised her, I promised her I'd be a doctor. Not, it didn't turn out to be a medical one, but I promised her I'd bring her that, that paper for her. Well, you know, it's funny that we all kind of tend to have some background of similar of being, um, I, I don't know about Gabino, but he goes, but, but I, but we seem to have that background where we were all struggling to succeed, which I, I think sometimes growing up poor and having this kind of need probably go together. I mean, I, I loved college. I went, but I never finished because I couldn't afford it. And uh, my writing started selling and I said, man, that, and I, I that's what I want to do. And I mean, I, I would go oh. back every now and again, but I just, I had, I had to, I had to write. I had no choice. You know, it's funny. I have the opportunity, we were talking about rejection, to confront the person who most recently rejected me tonight because Gabino rejected my Christmas horror story. (laughs) 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 Talk about something that I think is important when we're talking about rejection is at a certain point, you got to stop taking it personally unless somebody says something personal to you. You know, and, and he sent me, he was he sent me like a message. It was like, hey, man, I like this story. It doesn't fit for what we're trying to do with the Hallmark Hall Dark uh, collection. And, you know, if this was 20 years ago, I'd be like, well, fuck that dude. And it's like, <laughs> and, you know, it's like okay, I understand. It's, a, it's, you know, it's not personal. It's business. It's a decision. Doesn't mean the story's bad. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Because I used to feel like that. I felt like people were insulting me when they didn't take my story. And like I said before, I'm a country boy. So it's like, you know, watch, watch, watch keep my name out your mouth if you're going to say that. And so it's like, <laughs> I used to feel that way. But now, as I'm a little bit older, a little more mature, I can talk to Gabino. You don't like the story or you, it doesn't work. That's fine. We're still somewhat friendly. So <laughs> I said what I said. <laughs> Uh, here's that, that, that's a good segue, man, because I've, I've seen this from both sides. Um, I wanted to get with, with that, uh, with that anthology, I wanted to get, uh, folks paid. It was, you know, Christmas was coming up, uh, to answer Joe's, uh, Joe's question. Uh, I, I don't have a history of that. I'm still in that. I live, uh, I live here in Austin, um, uh, in affordable housing. So it's, it's, it's still the, the ongoing struggle is here. Uh, on the on the rejection and uh, listening to Cena right now, it's kind of you know, uh, my mom and my dad are not gonna read my work because they don't they don't read in English. So anybody who rejects me is like, I don't give a fuck. My parents are not gonna <laughs> they're not gonna be hurting because of that. They don't they don't even know what's going on. So we good. Uh, for that anthology, I wanted to get some some folks paid, and uh, we we got a, a, a very nice publisher, Cemetery Gates Media, and they said we're gonna pay. Uh, five cents per word, which was nice, you know. Uh, it was better than twenty bucks on a PDF. And uh, 
they they said uh, we're gonna give you seven uh, seventy thousand words, and I got seven hundred submissions. And then at the end of the day, I was like, I was turning down folks like Sean, you know, with big five presses. And I was, folks were sending me their uh, links to their websites and they were all like USA Today bestselling authors. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. Uh, and then on the other side, I was, I was uh, <laughs> selecting stories like uh, this young lady, uh, Magnolia Strock, who's a, uh, a junior in high school. And she sent a story that was a superb fit. And this was her first uh, her first sale ever. Some of these stories were so goddamn great uh, that I reached out to a second publisher and you will see Sean's stories uh, out December of this year because I had to put another one together without the Hallmark thing because, <laughs> you know, he sends me this story about a black family and I'm just going to say this, it's it's the most haunting story about a Christmas tree that you're ever going to read. Uh, and I just, I just had to get more people paid. So I think be, between uh, the two anthologies is going to be around, uh, around 50 authors that, that I'm going to manage to get paid. I'm going to get two books out into the world, but that's 50. And that means 650 of them took time away from their kids, their family, their friends, their significant others. There were not, drinking or, or watching documentaries or doing whatever it is that they wanted to do. They weren't taking naps. They were sitting down and putting the, putting the work in. Uh, and at the end of the day, you have to go like, I'm not a millionaire because I would love to pay everybody, even with a rejection. Like, Hey, you put in the work, <laughs> go work some more, but here's a hundred dollars because you, you know, you did, you did good. Um, so I've seen both sides and, 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 and it's always this struggle with uh, that's why I think, 700 stories. I wrote 700 personal um, emails, whether that was uh, acceptances, invitations to to the other anthology, or, uh, you know, 600 rejections. I, I read your story. Here's why it didn't make it in. Uh, please keep writing. And, and, and I hope to read you somewhere, somewhere down the road, except telling Sean that he sucks. That wasn't personal, uh, but, you know, sometimes you just got to set people straight. He's he's Mr. Hollywood now, big four, so I had to put him in his place. Did uh, did Keane su submit something to that, too? Because I saw that he was writing something, but I, I don't know. If he, Brian Keane, did he submit something to you? Hell, yeah, he got in. Oh, Sean, how's that feel? <laughs> yeah. Sean's, I've, 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 I spent time with Sean in, in Baltimore a couple of years ago. Uh, he's a big dude, but so am I. But Brian King's got guns, a lot of guns. Uh, so, so I had to choose. <laughs> fist of bullets, man. I always take, I always take fists. I don't want fucking yeah. bullets. <laughs> and, and, he, and he told me once, uh, uh, he'll probably listen to this. He, he's big on, on this thing where he always says, uh, don't fuck around with an old man because we don't have time. We'll just put you out. Uh, so look at, look at Joe Nani. So, or a guy that's smaller than you guys because I'm not going to mess around. <laughs> exactly. I've heard Brian say no. that. I feel like at StokerCon. There's this uh, senior technician at my job that said jokingly to me, I hope, uh, I am old enough where I don't care about prison anymore. It doesn't scare me, so don't piss me off. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm not one to, I'm not going to so much give advice, but I'll just say one thing that's always worked for me. And I, this comes to his, and, and uh, something Camino said when he said that, you know, his, his parents couldn't read in uh, English. And uh, so they're not going to read it. So the hell with it. 
But actually, I've always said you should write like everybody you know is dead. You know, when you sit down to write, fuck everybody. And don't write for anybody. Don't write for the market. Write for yourself. Because, because when I first started, I tried to write for the market uh, because, you know, that's what I understood to do. But I realized pretty soon that I wasn't doing very good at it. And second of all, I realized I wouldn't be very happy doing it. And I decided the kind of writer I wanted to be. And uh, certainly I wanted to make a living and I've been very fortunate, but you know, with books and movies and all that, I've, you know, I've been able to survive quite nicely. Thank you. But I had to work my way through it. And the way I did it and the way it began to work for me was writing like everybody I know is dead. And when you're writing, it's fuck the reader. You're not concerned with the <laughs> reader, the hell with the reader. Then when you get through, then you can get weepy about, I hope somebody likes it. But when you're doing it, you have to do it for you. And no, and no one else. I mean, that's my belief. Yeah. You know, there are some people say, well, I, I, have, I have the first reader that I give it to and nothing wrong with that. But I don't, I don't give a shit what your opinion is. You know, when I'm right and I get it done and I don't care if, you know, my agent, if he likes it, that's great. If he doesn't, you, that's not your job, baby. Your job is sell it. <laughs> and then when let people decide, you know, it, it'll either rise and fall on its own worth or you know, I'm, I'm not doing it right. And, and obviously some things you write are better than others. I mean, I've, I've been at this now almost 50 years, you know, and, and full time, uh, 40 something years. And, and I learned a long time ago, I got to make me happy first, or I'm never going to succeed. And I, I, I just, that's my little bit of, I guess you'd call it advice. I don't know. Sid Haig said something very similar to that. He said, I do this for me first. And it's, it, it, it's, you, you got to do that. If you do it for the paycheck, I've seen enough writers say this. If you do it for the paycheck or any other reason, you can get all the money in the world, but you got to do the work. You're not going to do the work well, if you don't love it, right? You also got to look I, yourself I think in you the mirror. Gotta, I mean, I, yo, go ahead. Uh, go ahead I, say, I think you got to believe in it in a way that nobody else does. Nobody's going to be the biggest advocate for you other than you. You know what I'm saying? Like my darkest prayer got rejected 83 times and I had an agent. I had an agent was trying to sell it and he was like, I can't sell it. And I get those, uh, what Gabino talked about. I like to call them the three quarter rejection where it's like, man, the dialogue is great. The setting is, is interesting. The the characters are really vibrant. I don't know the fuck we're going to do with it. But, and so it's like, you know, I, I got rejected so many times that I took it back from the agent. And I, I did. A, I, I met a publisher at a live reading because I got a piece of advice one time from a guy that I was working with. I was working construction. I was a, a brick mason's a, a laborer. I wasn't a brick mason. I was a guy that like stirred the concrete and carried the uh, carried the bricks and the brick tongs and and all that kind. Of, if you don't know what a brick tong is, Google it. It's a horrible freaking uh, torture device. And um, I remember talking to this guy and he was telling me. He said, "Here's the thing." You got to sell yourself. I was talking about my writing. I was talking about stories. I got a lot of rejections. And he said, well, you got to sell yourself. He said, you got to do whatever it is to set yourself apart from other people. He said, there's 100,000 people that are trying to be writers. He says, 50,000 people who might actually stick with it. There's maybe 25 people who will stick with it in the long term. You got to set yourself apart from those people. And, you know, with my darkest prayer, I was like, yeah, I want to write this detective story that's set in Virginia with a with a biracial protagonist that works at a funeral home. It's weird. It's unusual. But guess what? I like it. At the end of that day, I would read that book. You know, I wrote it, but I would still read it. And so you've got to believe 
and yourself in a way that borders on arrogance. I think that's just my opinion. It, yeah, you got to have confidence in yourself or you'll never get anything done. And, you know, anybody that really writes has I wouldn't give you five cents for somebody without ego, but I wouldn't give you anything for somebody that's egotistical. They're two different things. Ego is is that belief in yourself and confidence. It's not narcissism. That's that's carrying it to egotism, a totally different thing. When you get up in the morning and you're writing a story and you're trying to be a full fledged writer and make a living at it like you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that there's a reason to this. Sometimes somebody else may not feel the same, but I've done so much now that I know, if, hey, if somebody doesn't like this one, they're going to like the next one. Or, you know, main thing is I like them. You know, I like them. And I don't want to write like anybody else. I'm influenced by many writers. But, and, uh, you know, Chandler, Chester Himes, you mentioned earlier, I him, Hammett, uh, Hemingway, Bradbury, uh, Mathis. I mean, the list could just go on and on. I'm influenced by all those writers some at different stages in my life, some permanently. But the idea is I don't want to be any of them. I, I, I'm not looking to have anybody's career. I'm not looking to have, you know, the same approach, but I'm learning devices from them, how to put the, how to do the mechanical work, how to put things together. And then I'm trying to take all of that stuff that I've experienced in life and all of my feelings about things. And, and sometimes anger, anger is a, a real drive for me sometimes. And, uh, you know, I've written a lot of like whimsical, fluffy things, but I've also written a ton of dark things because I want to get them out of me. But they're also something that somehow fascinates me at the same time. And so, you know, it goes back to what we're saying. you got to believe in yourself. you got to go in there and do that first. And at the end of the day, you've got a body of work you're proud of. You you have a bunch of stories with your name on the on the cover that... Uh, they're the stories you want to read. That's, that's awesome. Now, um, Cena, Oh God, we're going back like a half hour now, maybe more, but we were talking about Santa Muerte earlier and how, you know, you had trouble finding a home for it because you were told that, uh, Latin people didn't read. Um, so what kind of strikes me is I, I went through that book last year and I loved it. And the main reason I loved it was because, it had different elements than anything else I read last year. I didn't read anything else that you know was taking place in a northern city, but dealt with the cartel. I didn't read anything that dealt with the cartel, and you know, bringing that into the story adds an element of horror that I didn't get in the other hundred and thirty some odd books that I read last year. Um, so, you telling that story, the one that you needed to tell, you know, that's to me that's a success. Um, to not put something out in the world that just gets lost in the shuffle because it's not, it's not your voice. Right. Um, and it was not so much. And it was an important story for me to tell at that time because, uh, you know, people, I live in Chicago in the city, in the inner city, that's where I grew up. And, you know, Chicago's the boogeyman in all of media because of our crime. But I didn't think, at that time that a lot of people realize how much the drug cartels have a direct influence in the shipment and the distribution of drugs in the Chicagoland area and how they have a lot of control over that. And so we even have like some major drug lords in our prison system here. So there was a lot of that in those interesting things that were happening that I felt no one was writing about. And a lot of these things were impacting young people. And that's one of the most tragic things about Chicago is that young people die every day. I know people who have 
been killed. Um, and that's children of Chicago isn't about cartels, but it's about that greater uh, theme them exploring about horrible things that anyone can do. And in Chicago, it tends to be children killing children. So I'm, you know, looking back at my older works, I'm happy that I did them. Um, you know, I, I wasn't wrestling with myself for a long time because I was almost ashamed of them, maybe because they weren't well received for such a long time. And I almost kind of wanted to like forget about them. Like after postmortem press folded, I was like, okay, thank goodness. No one's ever going to read those books. They're gone. But then I, I told myself, how is that fair to all that the person you were back then and all the work that you put into it? And so that's why I'm in the process of like trying to make them my older works accessible to people because even though that's not what I write today, I feel like it has a place in in my career and who I am today as a writer. Yeah, you can watch yourself evolve and other readers see where you started and where you ended up or where you currently are, which, you know what? Your older stuff couldn't be the most inspiring thing that someone read. I mean, Brennan just got, he just told you his reaction was very powerful. Um, Thank you. That's, that's great to hear. For me last year, uh, Zero Saints was one of the more powerful reads. That was the first, last year was the first time I read Gabino's Zero Saints. Um, and I told him this before, but he had a chapter about La Frontera, the border. Uh, of course, I know how horrible it can, we see it on the news all the time. You know, we had a, a ship president that had a lot of families and children in cages, but I'm from New England and I live in Jersey now. I don't know what that's like. He made me know what that's like to go there with expectations, what it's like afterwards, why the crime and poverty and how that all intertwine and how you don't have any choices. And it was so effective that I, I've been inspired in both life to think of different ways. I try to approach subjects that I know nothing about, which is keep my mouth shut and listen to someone like Abino or you uh, see it in these scenarios, or uh, it also affected my own writing. Um, and I, I think that we need more, I'm getting way off track, but we need more voices like you guys. So I'm going to stop there. Brennan, why don't you take us away to your next question? Um, all right. So I, I, I pitched something earlier, uh, kind of piggybacking off uh, Gabino's um anthology that he did with cemetery gates now i'm gonna throw it to him first because i already kind of know how he feels about it and i love it but uh the whole idea of when you submit something to a submission whether it be a magazine an anthology whatever it is what's your opinion on what the publisher's role is as far as sending out rejections and and you know how detailed they should be uh just gut feeling so I, I know that folks sometimes don't write. They're just full-time editors, and I get that. Uh, if you took time out of your life to write a story for me, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to talk to you about it. That's me. I know it's it's a pain in the ass. It's time-consuming. You run the risk of people saying, uh, you know, I didn't want this level of, of detailed feedback. Um, who are you to tell me what needs to be better about my story? Uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, but you don't like that, don't fucking submit to my anthology. Um, it's, you know, you went through the work, man. If I'm going to say no, the least I can say is, hey, how are you doing? You coping all right? 
hey, this didn't make it. Here's why. And here's the parts that I did like. I did not read a single story that I did not enjoy, at least in part. Here's the, here's the stuff that you nailed, man. This is great dialogue. You had great characters. Uh, you did not have this three things that I was looking for. Keep writing, submit again, keep your eye open for other things. It takes time out of my life, but you took a lot more time to write four or 5,000 uh, words and, and, and sending them to me and, you know, going through the editing process that you probably did. Uh, I know some folks even hired out editors uh, from time to time to send stuff out that's even more, uh, more ready to go. Uh, that's my opinion. I know some folks just have a form letter. That's fine. If you're sending out, you know, 250 rejections a day, you probably need that form rejection letter to let folks know. Uh, but I'm not I'm not a full time editor. When I do a project, it's going to be a passion project. If you send me something, writing is your passion just as, as it is mine. And, and I'm going to show you some love, even if I'm saying no, uh, I'm going to wish you well. I'm going to tell you it was good. And uh, and that's where I stand. Uh, maybe I'm an idiot, but that's how I'm, that's how I'm going to do things. Well, we learned that uh, unless it's Sean, you'll be nice about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mentioned it earlier. The guy from Midnight Graffiti, the editor from Midnight Graffiti, God forgive me, I can't remember his name, but I was 15 years old when I got the rejection. I wrote this hard. You know, it's funny. Rejections, yeah, yeah. And rejections keep you honest. Because rejections make you realize what you have to work on. What are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And I wrote this horrible horror story about a serial killer who eats kids. And one of the kids he ate regrew inside of him like a uh, in utero uh, twin. And um, the guy from Midnight Graffiti sent me a personal rejection letter. And it meant so much to me. I didn't care that my story got rejected. I had written something that you know, garnered his attention enough that he wrote in his own handwriting, you know, what I was good at and what he thought I needed to work on. And, and it gave me such encouragement in that rejection. So that that negative became a positive. I know it's not feasible for every publisher to do that with every situation. I understand that. But I think the publishers that do or the editors that do, I think they have really created a sense of accomplishment in the people that get rejected because you feel like, okay, I can't speak for every writer, but I I go through three stages when I'm writing. I go through the first stage where it's like, oh, this is all right. Then I go through the second stage. God, this is the drizzling shits. And then I go through the third stage where it's like, it's it's not too bad. It's not too bad. I think I I, I set out to do what I wanted to do. And so when you get a rejection from an editor that maybe saw the first stage and saw the possibility of the second stage, it makes you feel like, okay, I'm doing this. I, I can do this. I have the ability. Maybe I didn't hit it out of the park this time, but I can keep stepping up to the plate. So I, I really, I enjoy masochistically the personal rejection. Well, yeah, you know, one thing you just said, I think it's funny because when I'm writing a story, my first stage is I am a goddamn genius. I just, oh, oh, nobody can do this. And then my middle stage is, oh my God, this is awful. This is the worst thing ever written and then I, i've reached the third stage and i go i got to get this finished i got to do it best i can but i got to get it i got to get it finished but for me it's that excitement makes me feel like i'm smart when i <laughs> when i first go in and then i realize i'm not that smart <laughs> now I'm, 
I'm curious, do any of you ever feel this way? Because I can relate to y'all with that. Like uh, the first one, I'm excited. The second one, I just texted Brendan this this morning or yesterday. I can't remember. I said, I think this is so fucking weird and dumb. No one's going to like it. And then the third one is like, I love it. Not in an egotistical way, but why else am I writing it? Does anyone at any point think your shit's so weird that who is going to like it in their right mind? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I oh, love yeah. a story called Bubba Hogan. Yes. A real awesome, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's and my I favorite one. Oh, my God. What in the hell have I done? And uh, I was going to, you know, and that's when we were sending by mail. And I was going to withdraw the story. And before I could send, I let it sit a few days. And I was going to withdraw the story. And I got a letter from Paul saying, hey, this is our favorite in the anthology. And I said, yeah, I knew it was good. <laughs> Now, but I don't do drafts either, so I don't have a lot of. I do one draft and a polish. But when I write one, one draft, I rewrite daily a lot. So if you okay. had a trash can like I used to, it'd be full every day because I'm revising as I go. And but when I get finished, I've got one draft, and then I go back and polish it because otherwise, I, I don't want multiple drafts. That makes me crazy because I, I get all confused and I don't know, you know, I took the monkey out. Should I put the monkey back? You know, I don't know what to do. And so I write one draft and polish it as I go. And then when I, I get to the end, I, I do one a polish and not a read, not another draft, a polish. I, I don't believe in multiple drafts for me. That's not for anybody else. I don't write outlines either. I don't write synopsis because once I do that, I'm no longer interested in writing a story. I already told that story. Even if it's just a synopsis form, I'm not interested anymore. And so I've even written whole novels when somebody, you know, when I was starting out, they want a synopsis. So I'd write the entire novel and then write a synopsis based on, on the novel because I, I couldn't do it. I do it a little better now because I've learned I can just lie. I can just make up shit. And then when I get ready to write the book, I don't write that book. You know, I I'm, I'm have some maybe elements of it, but I, I just say, yeah, it changed as it went along. <laughs> <laughs> now real quick Bubba Hotep that's how I was introduced to you not with the, the uh, short story but the movie with Bruce Campbell as Elvis Presley and Ossie Davis's John F. Kennedy right. for whoever hasn't seen that yet you gotta watch that it's a killer movie directed by Don um, yeah the dude that did Phantasm, Phantasm. Uh, I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how you can uh, get a better group of uh, actors and a director together. Well, you know, the, what Don, we? one day I just got this phone call. And it was Don Coscarelli. And he said, this is Don Coscarelli. And I'm a I said, I know who you are. And he said, can I come, <laughs> can I come visit with you a few days? And I said, well, yeah, man, get on the horse. And so he, he came and he stayed with us a few days and he was uh, trying to talk me into a different one. Then I think it, it may have been the driving, or it may have been dead in the West. I don't honestly remember, but I decided he was uh, uh, too cheap. That's what I decided. He was too cheap, and uh, because, and I can say that because I love him. He's like a, you know, he's 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 like the brother that that uh, is out to make a movie no matter what, and he and he'll get it done. right. But uh, so he wasn't able to do that. I think one of them was under option or something. But I, you know, I just love Don, and later on he optioned Bubba Hotep and Incident on and off a of mountain road. And I said, I can see Incident on and off a of mountain road, but you can't film Bubba Hotep. This thing's crazy. It ain't going to happen. I remember when I wrote it, I told my brother, I know I got one story nobody will ever film. And um, so 
He said, no, I think I can. And he said, you want to write the script? And I said, I don't know. And I didn't, I didn't love the pay for one, but secondly, I just thought I don't want to embarrass myself trying to adapt this, what I thought was a difficult story for film. And then he sent me a script that he did. And I thought, damn, you know, I think he can do it. And I remember my son saying, dad, is there any way we can get my favorite actor, Bruce Campbell? And I said, I have no pay in these things. I, it's not my call. I don't get to do that. And it wasn't long after that, I got a call from Don Coscarelli. He said, what do you think about Bruce Campbell? Love it. And, you know, and I met Bruce, and Bruce and I became friends. I, I loved him anyway. I've watched all of his movies. And, and he is just one hell of a stand-up guy, too. I really like him uh, you know, personally. But I got to meet one of my heroes, Ossie Davis. And, of course, I, I hoped that after he met me, he didn't remember me because I was like uh, almost one of the few times in my life that I was a fucking gibbering idiot. And I'm not much impressed by actors. It's writers that do it for me, you know, like Matheson Bradbury. I met all of them and got to, got to know, uh, you know, Matheson a little. And, but when I met Ozzie Davis, it wasn't just that he was an actor and he was a good one. I, I, I think the first thing I really took note of him was a skin game. And then I started you know, kind of backtracking and forward moving with him. But what it was is that he was the civil rights icon and people have forgotten that, you know, I think he gave the eulogy at Malcolm X's funeral, if I remember right. Yep. And spoke at, uh, yep. at uh, uh, Martin Luther King's funeral, if, if, if I remember. And he actually knew Elvis and he knew JFK. And here was, <laughs> and among, and he was among the first black producers and among the, among some of the first, you know, di directors, black directors, he wrote, he wrote screenplays. He wrote plays. He was an actor. He did, you know, he could do Shakespeare. He could do on the stage. He, so I was, when I met him, I, I came up, how you doing? <laughs> he was probably thinking, yeah, that cracker got some problems. But he, uh, I gotta tell a funny story really quick. I gotta tell a funny story really quick. Oh, yeah, and uh, oh. you know, and that was a big, and I got to talk to him a little bit after that because I kind of recovered. But I remember my voice moved to a higher scale and made me feel really, really goddamn silly. And then years later, I was in Italy, and my daughter was playing music in Italy, and I was there for a book festival. We we would cross paths, and this guy that was playing was this hell of a blues player. His name was Guy Davis, and I had on my Bubba Hotep shirt, and he came over and he said, "I love my dad in that." And I went, what? And that was his son. And he said, I got to get a picture and send it to mama. I thought, oh, my God, mama's Ruby D. <laughs> so to me, that had an echo that kept going. And that movie just keeps gaining ground. You know, it, it used to be like a little cult classic. And now it's just become like one of these offbeat American films that gets uh, a lot of really good attention. I bought that. And Sean, I'll come to you real quick, bud. Um, just my two... I just got to say super quick. Um, I was 13 when that came out, I believe, 13 or 14. Bought the DVD, still own it. I sold most of my DVDs, but that was – I'm sorry. I'm a fanboy. Super duper quick. Love that movie. Great story. All right, Sean, go ahead before I uh, embarrass myself. Oh, no. I, I'm going to embarrass myself now because this is a funny story. So in, 20, in 2019 – uh, we were at the Bouchercon uh, uh, convention, and uh, I was up for uh, an Anthony for um, Best Short Story. And we did a Noir the Bar at the convention. And my buddy, my my road dog, uh, who Mr. Mr. Lansdale knows, uh, Eric Pruitt, was the host yeah. for the Noir the Bar. 
And Eric, uh, he said, uh, yeah, man, Joe Lansdale is going to be here. And I remember freaking out because I've been a fan of Joe Lansdale for a long, long time from like early horror stories and Western horror stories and werewolf stories and all of that. So my wife was with me at the convention. And this is what my wife said. She said, when, when Joe Lansdale stepped up to the lectern, all of us hard, tough, hard drinking uh, mystery and crime writers were like little kids. We all like, <laughs> she said, she could see it in our body language. She's like, I thought it was like Madonna had walked in the room. All you guys were like <laughs> sitting with your head, chins on your, on your fist, just at the feet of the master. And I, I was telling her, I was like, I don't think that's what happened. And so I called Eric and I asked him, I said, hey, we did Noir at the bar at Bouchcon and, and Joe came to the lectern. Did we all like freak out? He's oh yeah, fuck yeah, yeah yeah. We we freaked the fuck out. It was crazy. So I just had to, I had to throw that out there as my personal Joe Lansdale story. Also, I also was at the um, the Western Crime Panel where you uh, schooled some guy about Bass Reeves, which was just one of my highlights of that convention. I was so happy about that. So anyway, and throw that in there. <laughs> Brennan. Uh- I feel like you got a good segue, man. Oh, do I? Um, okay. From I'm throwing it on you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do have I do have a question. Um, so as far as you know, taking it back to rejections and stuff like that, um it's it, it's a part of the game. You gotta get used to it. You don't really have a choice if you want to be a writer. There is no way around it. Um I've we've had a couple people on the show that kind of shared their ideas. Uh, a couple that stuck out to me. Um, Haley Piper will basically treat it like a game and try and submit so many stories during the course of a year that she tries to collect upwards of 100 rejections during a calendar year. Uh, Todd Kiesling will try and uh, forget he sent something out so that he doesn't get stressed about um waiting waiting for the answer to come in and you know then when it does either forgot about it and no big deal or it's a fun surprise so for newer writers uh i'm wondering if you guys have any tips and tricks on handling that and you know just kind of dealing with getting used to the process i like the keep busy approach just keep writing like send something out and just keep writing go to the next thing because if you don't jump into at least for me if i don't jump into the next project i'm just going to keep being fixated and like hitting refresh on my email and that's not healthy so i tend to have like even now i tend to have i'm juggling a lot of projects i have like three novels a novella (laughs) a few short stories that i i'm all trying to work on right now so I know that they're out there, but I'm so busy with these other targets that it does. I don't have worry or anxiety about it. So keep busy. At least for me, that's been really helpful. Sina, you um, real quick, you, you posted something a while ago and it was funny. That goes along these lines. You said uh, you can refresh it all you want. It's like 3 AM. No one's no one's going to reply. And, and that, I don't know when you wrote that. That was that was a while ago, but that stuck with me. Yeah, yeah, and especially like I see writers that were online, and you know, 
I'm online. So I'll check in as a like, you know, mental health break from, from writing just to see who's around. And it's kind of nice because you can always tweet and find a writer friend that's up in, you know, camaraderie, like we're up and it's late. But I remember seeing some writers talking about um, waiting for responses. And that's why I kind of wanted to say, you know, it's, if it's super late at night, most people in New York or agents or editors are going to keep you know, regular hours for the most part, most of them, at least for me, most of the responses that I've gotten that are um, acceptances or whatnot are industry related are during business hours. So it's just kind of like a reminder that if it's 3am, if you're up late or 10 10 o'clock, you know, take that time and work on something else. Don't refresh your email a million times, you know, give yourself that, that break. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, can I, can I, I don't, I don't really think about rejections much, you know, it's just not, yeah. And you know, I, I don't really, fortunately I don't get many anymore, but you know, every once in a while you'll get something where they'll go, well, this isn't like, like usually it's film with me because you're working with three or four different people or, or you're maybe pitching a comic idea or, or something like that. But I, I generally sell all the stories and, and I, I guess I've, I've reached a point where I feel like somebody doesn't buy that one. I'm going to turn around and sell it over here, you know, anyway, but the thing is, is that um, just to put editors into perspective, they're not all like Gabino. When I, when I was writing early on, and this was when there were hundreds of magazines, that's why I could get, you know, a thousand rejects over four years because it took them that time to mail it back. I mean, I got, it was just amazing. But uh, uh, some guys that worked at Leisure Books, uh, and I sold a book under a pen name there once. But they told me because uh, I, I got to meet him. I, and I believe it was the editor, one of the editors that told me. I, and he said that we had a big, big stack of all of these manuscripts that came in over the transom. And uh, because that's the way a lot of it was done back then. It wasn't agents. You, you know, the agents did do that. And those moved to the front of the pile. But most of it was over the transom. And you had first readers and second readers. You know, you don't have that anymore. But he said they would stack all these things on this table, which which kind of came up even with the furnace. And he said, when they got behind, they just pushed them all in the furnace, just like oh. I got a response. Nothing. And and I knew editors that said, yeah, sometimes I just open up the envelope and put the reject in there without reading it. And that's back then. Now wow. I'm sure that, and I'm trying to put it into perspective, you know, but the idea that everybody's reading your story and, and, and really reading it in the way that it should be read. Um, you got to understand that they're not, not everybody is scrupulous. There are some unscrupulous ones. And I'm not suggesting that any of the fine editors that you've sent your material to are doing that. But some of those, some of those motherfuckers are, because that's just the way it, yeah. it happens, you know, because it, that's reality. And if you have people yeah. that are, yeah. you know, getting all these manuscripts, now it's a little different because they just get agented manuscripts for the most part, or you meet somebody at a, uh, you know, at a, at a convention and maybe you have some, a few words in there interested in what you're doing and, you know, they'll look at it, but just to put it in perspective too. And it's another reason I don't feel a whole lot about that because um, most of the editors I sell to ask me for the story first. So that makes it easier, you know, because they come to me and say, Hey, will you write for this anthology? Cause I mainly write for anthologies when I do short stories, the rest of the time I'm doing novels, but, in the old days and in the days when you guys were start, uh, I mean, I was starting and now where you guys, some of you are, are, are a little bit newer writers. You have to understand that not everybody out there is really giving you a fair shake. And I know that's not, 
that's not exactly heartwarming, but it is exactly true, you know, and some of it is that they just get overwhelmed. But I just always thought that that uh, I learned a lot when they told me about how, yeah, we just get covered. We just push that. And I mean, they put, put six feet of boxes of manuscripts because it was all paper then, you know, and just push it in the, the furnace. So that there's the love of literature for, for you, the love of story. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Well, they got the delete file now. <laughs> yeah. I'll see this. I've been very blessed to have been on sort of this one side of that issue as a as a, a new writer, you know, struggling. I mean, everybody knows about Black Child Wasteland, but I've been writing since I was 15. I've been sending stories out since I, I you know, I like as Joe was saying, I went from the self-addressed stamped envelope to the email generation. So I've been I've been sending a story out for a long time. And I've gotten a lot of rejections. And the best thing I can tell somebody that's new is just don't take it personal. You, you've got to, like, look at every rejection as a brick in the wall that you're building that one day you're going to build a house out of it. You know, that, that that's just a it's just a piece of material that's going to push you. But I will say this. It's funny that there are people who have asked me now for short stories and asked me to be a part of anthologies now that three or four years ago wouldn't have spit on me if I was on fire, you know, and it's yeah, just, that's, that's the nature to think. Yeah. It's like, you don't, I, I, I was going to say, it's part of, part of me is like, wow, this is really cool. But part of me is like, motherfucker, I was writing the same shit back then and I'm right now, but it's, that's the nature of the beast. But I want to ask yeah, a yeah. question really quick. And if it's personal, okay. let me know. How many rejections did you get for Zero Saints? Because that is a fearless, fearless piece of work. That book, that book makes me feel like I am just twisting in the wind. It is such a good piece of work, and it's so fearless and it's so out there. And I'm just curious, as what was the what was the process for that? And to throw, sorry to cut you off, Cabino, but just to add to what he just said, so people that haven't read it, maybe potential readers. You know, it's a uh, it's in the secondary voice. And look, that's hard to pull off in a short story, man. You did it in a novel. So that's my two cents to add to that. The uh, uh, I lost count. I lost count of how many people passed on it. Uh, there's a lot of Spanish in that book, which I knew was going to be hard for some people to process. But uh, I felt like that was that was my voice. I, and I can can back down. And here's the funny story. I went through what people tell you that you need to do. Uh, and then one day I got an invitation to go read at a nor the bar in Norman, Oklahoma. And I was, I was broke. I had no car and I jumped in a car with Nate Southard and, uh, Shane McKenzie. And we drove, uh, from Austin to Norman and, and we read, and I read the opening chapter. And at the end of that, uh, J. David Osborne came up to me and he said, I'm not going to promise you shit. But when you're done with that one, <laughs> uh, send it to me. And, and you know, three months later, uh, I sent it to him and he read it in two days and said, uh, I want to publish this thing. So it was it was no agent. I didn't send it out via email. It ended up finding a, a place uh, just randomly because I said yes, uh, which brings me to my Lansdale funny story. Many years ago, Alamo South Lamar. Uh, I went uh, to see Christmas with the Dead. 
<laughs> and uh, J- Joe was there, and you know, fan, huge fan, always been. And uh, I kind of wanted to know the secret. And as we were, we, we had a nice conversation outside. And then as we were walking in, I says, how do you do it? And he said, uh, keep a, bo- a bunch of pokers in a fire. And uh, now up to this day, I don't know how long ago that was. I really don't remember that Alamo doesn't even exist anymore. It's been a while. And people say like, hey, man, you're trying to get the novel done and you're teaching and you're editing on the side and you're putting together anthologies and you're writing for a criminal element and the San Francisco Chronicle and NPR and, uh, you know, all these places. I shut the fuck up. Joe told me keep a bunch of pokers in the fire. <laughs> so that's 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 my go to thing is that you're doing too much. There's no such thing. Ask a busy person. It's not yeah. it's not about finding somebody with time. It's asking a busy person because they know how to parcel their time but i want to say two things and then then is one thing is that you know stories too if you believe in a story i wrote a story called the pit which i couldn't give away i wrote a story um called um um on the far side of the cadillac desert that i did sell but i had had people wanting to look at parts of it and they go oh no that's too crazy i had uh, a number of stories like that some of which are now in volumes that are called classic which you know that's not my call that's what they're calling and all those things had rejections. They had a lot of rejections. And now those same editors are like asking me for stuff, you know. Now, that's one thing I was going to say. So that just goes to prove that, you know, if you believe in something, stick with it. But the other thing I was going to say is that it's you guys that are younger than me in particular, um, you should have your own group of people. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is that they have experiences that are similar to your own, because when, when, when I was starting, you know, I started trying to write comic books when I was four and draw, found out I didn't have any artistic talent, but I could write. And so I've been writing here since I was four years old and, and trying to sell since I was, and I sold the first piece when I was 21, which was actually nonfiction, but I didn't know anybody. There was nobody out there. I lived, I never met a writer till I'd actually been selling for a while. And when I met writers, it wasn't that you know, they're giving you, because they're like you, they're struggling. Some of them are a little bit more done. Some of them had a little less, but people like David Scow and uh, uh, people like Lewis Shiner, who you may not know, you probably should, but you may not. And and some of the old heads like Neil Barrett were kind of our, uh, the people that we were looking at, but that group that was in our similar age group, or at least were in that similar condition that we were all in at that time, trying to negotiate the markets and trying to keep ourselves uh, excited. It's great to kind of have your own team. I mean, I mostly was in East Texas by myself, but I would go to conventions and I would go to, uh, you know, different kinds of events that were writerly events because you meet people that are in that struggle, which I didn't have, you know, you know, my wife was always supportive, but back in East Texas, when I'd say I'm a writer, they go bulls, no writer, not writer, writer, <laughs> you know? And so you, you've got to have your own little group because they help you get through a lot. Even if they don't tell you anything about writing, they help you get through a lot. And uh, so yeah. I think it's cool that you're doing that. And every generation does that. And I, I look back and before us, there were people like Matheson and Charles Beaumont and Bradbury and, and my buddy, Bill Nolan. And there's so many, we all have our groups and, and those groups are, are very helpful. And the other thing I would say is that go to conventions, meet people. Because, you know, you're supposed to say, well, the work's what matters. It does. But if somebody knows you and you've seen that person and you've met that person and you've developed some sort of rapport with them, 
they're going to be more interested in looking at your work more carefully. It won't be in the furnace. You know, <laughs> they're going to look at it more carefully. And if they like it, you know, it's still got to stand on its own merits, but it does make a difference if they can put a face to the work, you know, that's, and, and uh, I, I, think I that's, agree with that's that. I, I agree with that hundred percent. Putting your stuff out there, introducing yourself to editors to other writers, uh, like Joe was saying, it makes a difference. And and to back go back to what he said about having a group. Um, when I first really got serious about crime writing, the people who I met that are still my friends today were like Eric Pruitt, Todd Robinson, Rob Hart, Kelly Garrett. We're all about the same age. We're all about the same generation. And you know. Those people support you. A lot of people will look at Blacktop Wasteland and everything that's going on with it and be like, oh, man, you're this overnight success. But ask Eric Pruitt about me and him driving up and down the East Coast in 2018 doing seven different Noir the Bars in a week and how we got how we got lost in Baltimore. And um, or ask Nick Corpron and me and Gabino doing a class uh, at, at George Mason University where we got to talk to like upcoming writers and 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 seeing people who were taking you know creative writing courses or you know ask me about when we were in dallas at bouchicon and me and uh you know uh, uh me and hector acosta and john vercher and jennifer harrier standing by the bar and doing shots it, it you need those people because nobody understands what it's like to sit in that chair and look at that computer or that typewriter or that notebook like another writer, you know, and you know, my wife, I love my wife. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. She's also someone that will tell me to leave her alone when I ask her to read this piece of fiction. And so I can text Eric at three o'clock in the morning and be like, hey man, can I send you this excerpt and see if I, you know, it sounds all right. I'm hit I got a guy hitting a guy in the head with a hammer and I want to see if I'm really getting it the way it should should be. And it's like, you know, you need that, man. And, that, and it goes the same way. You know, he'll hit me up or Nikki Dolson is a really good friend of mine. And people that I thanked in the acknowledgments and Blacktop Wasteland, a lot of them are fellow writers because writing is like telling yourself a joke for nine months or a year and hoping everybody else gets the punchline. And so you got to have that support, man. You, have that support. you know what? I, I'd really love to jump in super quick. Uh, I'm so happy you brought up Joe uh, and then how you added to that, Sean, about groups, because like I said, I've been, I've been, it started with my wife who got me a Kindle, who got me back into reading when I first met her and we started dating in 2013, um, which led to my obsession with writing. And uh, it took me until 2019 to meet Brennan. I got a group of friends. We're actually, we pretty much have the same group of friends that are our age, but Brennan is without a doubt the closest person I've ever met in the writing community. And it took me like six or seven years to finally meet someone like that, both from the similar background and met both Irish American kids from Massachusetts, both grew up Catholic. Uh, I can text him most hours of the day and vice versa about writing about our lives. Our wives are pretty much the same people. They both don't, don't like our, but they like uh, serial killer <laughs> documentaries. Uh, they aren't really fans of our fiction, but to kind of piggyback off of you guys, I need him. And I tell him that all the time. He's probably sick of it. And you guys just, you guys just word it perfectly. Cause I kind of think I'm a little nuts sometimes. And I, I think I've told him, I'm like, 
I got to be quiet when I'm leaving you voice messages at like work or in public. Cause if people hear me, they're going to think I'm trying to kill someone or I'm insane. I'm, I'm I can't be like, no, I'm a horror writer. I write crime sometimes. So thank you for that. Cause you just articulated how I felt about him and I haven't been able to articulate it for like two years. So thanks for that. Well, you know, I never had much in the way of having people read my stuff. I mean, there was a few times we traded stories, but in general, I didn't care if they liked it or not. But what I did care about is that we were all in the same struggle yeah. and that we were all trying to make it and that we were all trying to make it in our own way. I've always been kind of like when I'm actually writing and when I get, I don't need a cheerleader. I don't want one. What I want are people that are on the cheer squad with me, yep. you know, that we're all, we're all trying to struggle. We're trying to make that story get excited out there on the field, you know? And so I, I just, I think that people get different things out of it. I don't have first readers, second readers, and I don't want one because I don't care about your opinion. When I'm writing, I'm writing my thing. When I get done, then of course I'm hoping somebody likes it. And, uh, but, but the thing is, is that it does, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're getting that out of it or not. What you should be getting out of it is the fact that you can recognize and I recognize it in you. I, I feel the same kinship with you, but it's still different because I'm not that same group. It's not even generational necessary, necessarily. You can be older than the bunch or younger, but you're still the people that are starting at a certain time and are selling at a certain time. And that connection, you know, is valuable. It's very valuable. And I'm glad to see you have it. And, and, and for heaven's sakes, keep it. Thank, thank, thank you. I want to say, me and, me and Gabino and Nick Corporan had one of the great conversations of my life at George Mason University before we did our little presentation. And it was just us sitting at an outdoor restaurant, drinking beer and talking about writing, the business of writing, the art of writing, talking about what it means. Because, you know, I'm not somebody that puts myself on this, you know, I'm great. I'm writing great art. I'm not doing that. But I say something and when i get a chance to talk to guys like and if you don't know who nick corpron is he's an incredibly versatile writer out of baltimore maryland that writes crime novels and sci-fi novels really great guy i want to drop a, a, a little shout out to him but getting to sit there with him and, and gabino that day it always makes me feel a little bit better it always makes me feel a little bit less alone because writing is a solitary endeavor it really is and so when i can sit across the table like I said, from Gabino and Nick, and we're talking in a shorthand that only other writers, and I'm sure if I ever met Cena in person, it's that shorthand that you have that people understand what you're talking about. When you're talking about dialogue, when you're talking about plot, when you're talking about the right, you know, Mark Twain said the difference in writing is the difference between, you know, lightning and lightning bug. And when you have the opportunity, it makes rejection sting a little bit less. You know, and and I, I mean, Gabino may remember that day different than I do, but it, it meant a lot to me. So, you you forgot the sandwiches, man. We had some good sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Sean. Not, 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 not pushing our stand. I can't. And then and then <laughs> you also forgot that we kind of got lost in a hallway, and a lady poked down and said, "Are you gentlemen lost?" Uh, so they didn't expect it to walk around <laughs> some nice university hallways. Uh, they wanted to know what the fuck we were up to. Uh, but I was gonna, I was gonna say this. Um, I have thousands of books in my house, and uh, maybe I wrote four of them, and maybe I edited three. That's it. 
So uh, the rest of them is by other people. I don't read my own shit. I, my ego is not that big. <laughs> I, I, I want to read the books by everybody else. And, and I want to write about those books, you know, by, by all the writers. It's, it, it feels better to me. It, it's much more beautiful when I walk, you know, walk into front of my, my, my bookshelves and they're friends. You know, we've had a beer. We've had a conversation. I've texted you. Uh, I've sent you an email. We, we know each other. I, if I see you, I ask you, how, how's your family doing? You know, I, I, I see Joe. And yes, there's this thing, you know, we're, we're, we're in, the, in the phase of a living legend and national treasure. But, uh, you know, how's the wife? How's the dog? How is, how's the kids? How's the kids and their movies and, and their albums doing? And it, it's a beautiful thing. I want I don't want me to make it. I want everybody to make it because then, you know, yeah. everybody would be a little bit happier. We'll have money to go you to conferences. Is the more people that make it, the more room there is for more. Because exactly. it's the unsuccessful stuff that doesn't encourage people to buy books. Doesn't encourage. I'm talking about the publishers to buy books to put books out there. When someone makes a bunch of money, and I've heard somebody say, "Well, that's son of a bitch. I hate that," or "I don't like the way right." You can not like somebody uh, way they write, but there's a lot of writers that I think you know can't write their way out of a paper bag, but they sell millions. So guess what? They appeal to somebody. They they have an ability yeah. to do something I can't do. And so I go, I always look at that and go, okay, you know what? Always remember that we're all in this together, you know, and, mm -hmm. and those writers, actually, the ones that are really selling big, they're going to help you sell yeah. because they provide the money for them to buy your books. And so, you know, it, you, you got to have like the, the tide rises and all the boats rise. You know, some are going to rise higher. That's just the way it is. And you can never compete against other writers, too. I see people do this all the time. You're not going to compete against me because I'm only me. You're not going to compete against Ray Bradbury because he's Ray Bradbury. And you may put some people in different levels of what you think, but if you're doing it right, we all have our own voice and we all have our own interests. And that's the thing to remember is that when you start competing with other writers, you're going to spend all of your time, all of your emotions directed in the wrong direction. It needs to be directed into the story. When I finish the story and I've done the best I can, you know, sometimes I might do a reading where somebody has me do a reading, but I don't pull my stuff off the shelves all the time. And go, oh my God, what a wonderful piece of work. And, I've done, I've <laughs> and I sometimes don't even remember what I've written. Uh, you know, I might remember generally, I might remember the basic thing, but for me, it's the enjoyment of that moment. And that I might, after I get past that writing, like everybody I know is dead, then I get to that point where somebody might respond to it and love it. And I, I get, and here's another thing, and I, I'm sure some of you may have already had this, but you will get it is over time. People have written me and say, you know what? I was going through the worst time in my life. I was suicidal and I picked up a happen Leonard book and I just felt different. And so when I got through and I had a guy in Oklahoma, uh, you know, I was at a signing and uh, I'm trying to think where I was. I was in Tulsa and I was sitting there and the guy came up to me. He's a big guy, tattooed, rough looking guy, you know, and uh, it looked like he could probably eat a whole baby and, and manage it, you know. But he, he came up to me and he said, you know what? I want to thank you for your books. I said, well, thank you. You know, he said, no. He said, you let me let go of all kinds of hate, homophobia, you know, oh. black people whatever. And he said, and I said, well, what was, what did it? It was the Happen Leonard books. Well, sometimes it's something else, but the point is 
is if you're giving it everything you've got out of yourself and out of your emotions, you may write something and don't be scared to write something that's just fluffy. You know, you're not in a contest. And then when you get through though, and if you've written enough stuff that you mean something to you, it will impact people because you started with writing like everybody you know is dead. And I don't know how many people have told me that the books have practically saved their lives or when their parents were dying. I mean, some of the saddest stories you could ever imagine, you know, and, and then other times just people said, I, it's just so joyous to pick this book up or this story, whatever it is, you know? And then of course you get some say, quit writing. It sucks, you know, or whatever, but that's okay. You know, you get that. But, but the point is, is you're going to impact people. And, and that, that is like one of the great things that makes you realize this is really worth it. And people say, well, you know, science mm -hmm. and math and all these things are greater. They are great. And if I had your brains, I would probably be doing something else because, you know, it just probably would. But uh, as much as I love it. But the thing is, is that math, science, they're very, very important. But people who don't think writing's important, who don't realize what that does for you, when I get these letters and somebody did not commit suicide, at least according to them, by reading one of my books, I, I get weak. You know, I get really weak because I look at it and I thought, what, this, this, this kept them from doing that? This, you know, I, I wrote this because I wanted to and I wrote it as well as I can. But somehow my emotions and my passion reached out to them. So art and science and math are all on equal platforms. You know, there are different levels of who does it better than others. And and people get to decide that for themselves. But don't think everything that what you do is not important. And if some asshole says, oh, you're just writing books. I always think about Mel Brooks when his wife, the great actress, I can't think of her name right now, but she uh, had been you know, working on a play or something and she was having such a hard time that she'd come home every day and you're sitting here with your typewriter and all that. And he got a piece of paper, put it in there and set her in a chair and said, go. And said that she never, ever, said anything about it again, because I, I don't really have a hard time writing. I never feel lonely. I feel alone, but not lonely. And I love doing it. And, and the thing is, is that's a knack not everybody can do because that's the other thing is that these other people reading this, they're getting an experience that they themselves cannot do. So they can only get it from us. <laughs> you know, they can only get the experience from that's us. a good point. Yeah. It's a really yeah, good point. I, well, I didn't mean to run on about yeah. it. I got, I got chatty. Well, I've heard some people say that, you know, like, I wish everyone could write. Yeah, well, everyone's not going to be good. And the thing is, is even if they were, your heart's not in it. Not everyone's heart is in it. And, and to kind of comment on what you said about art, take art away. Take every piece of art in every format you have. First off, I don't have my Mac computer <laughs> because there's a lot of art that Steve Jobs put into every damn thing that he ever invented or facilitated. Take away music, shows. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but if I didn't have art, I would probably want to kill people. <laughs> well, that's part of what art I've uh, protect people. Yeah. I want to say something real quick. One of the great things about a writing community and, and this goes back to rejection cena and i follow each other on on twitter as we a lot of us follow each other on twitter but i remember there was a time when cena was going through a point where she was saying that she didn't know if the writing was worth it and all that kind of stuff and then the children of chicago sells and it's so gratifying to me to see somebody 
not only sell and achieve what they wanted to do, but the people around her and around you that really supported you and really, you know, clicked on that tweet and was like, no, keep writing. It's worth it. And I, I didn't know if you wanted to speak to that. But for me personally, I was sitting there watching it like, yeah, yeah, fuck yeah. I had people calling me. And so that's that's just like a testament to like, like they didn't even respond. It was like within seconds, like my text was blowing up and my phone was ringing and people were like, no, don't stop. Like, don't stop. Like, keep going. It's part of the process. You're frustrated. You're probably tired. There's, you know, and I managing a lot. I was just like in a point where I was just like, I'm done. It's getting rejected left and right. Editors are telling me it's too graphic. <laughs> Editors are telling me the protagonist isn't believable, a Latina detective. And I'm like, I'm Latina and they're Latina detectives. And it was just all these frustrating things that I kept being told over and over again. And I was like, I'm done. I'm just going to scrap it. And people emailing me, calling me, messaging me all within like those few minutes, the support. It was like, I, I almost felt embarrassed. Like, oh my gosh, like I didn't, I didn't do this for attention. I just did it just because it, I needed to, like in Spanish, you said this whole God, right? Gabino, Gabino, I don't know how you say that in English, how do you, but it's like, you want- <laughs> the, uh, the equivalent of letting off steam. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah. Like I wanted to just like get it out somehow because I just felt so frustrated and I didn't have anyone else to talk to. And I didn't want to, you know, my husband's always going to be like, you keep going. And I just don't know if he's, you know, he's just, he has to be my cheerleader. So I just kind of yeah. want to put it out there. Um, and they kept me going. Like a lot of, you know, I had, you know, one of my friends who, you know, someone that a writer that I know who's a New York times bestseller, he called me up and he was on the phone with me for an hour, just talking to me about like his career and his experience and his rejection and how he, you know, things that he dealt with in the eighties. And it was just like, you didn't have to do that, but he did just that people would take their time to spend with a new writer. That was incredible. And I felt, I just felt so, you know, I'm just so happy and honored and grateful, really grateful that people would, 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 uh, would do that. And it's because of them that I kept writing and kept trying. And, and, and like what you, you said, Sean, it's, I've learned now over time, not to take it personally, unless they say something personal. So that's helped yeah, that's tremendously, true. tremendously. It's a matter <laughs> of just switch that gear. Unless they say something personal, you never know. It could be, like with, uh, you know, Gabino's, uh, the uh, Haldark, you know, he was looking for a very certain aesthetic, very certain theme. He could have written a great, fantastic story. But once he, as an editor, once he was packaging everything together, I'm sure he wanted to make sure things complemented each other. And so there's a lot of things that go into it. So I've slowly started learning and reprogramming myself. Unless they don't say anything personal, don't take it personal. Just write the best story that you can write and write the story that makes you happy. Don't write for anybody else. Write for yourself. I like what Joe said. Everybody's dead. Just write for yourself. <laughs> I've, it's made me so much happier too, as a writer to write the story I want to tell myself. So that's, so thank you to everybody on this call because all of you have contributed to, to my writing career and development from, you know, reading Joe Lansdale stories and, you know, Blacktop Wasteland. I'm proud you stuck with it. Yes, yes. I'm so thank you, you everyone.
that, that's just wonderful. Well, thank you. You know, you get people that, that come up and say, I always wanted to write. No, you didn't. No, you don't. You just, <laughs> I always wanted to write. Or my favorite is, you know, I got some good ideas, but I just can't put them down. Well, that's a goddamn trick, isn't it? Putting it down. <laughs> You know, and I, I always despise people. I always wanted to be a writer. Well, what, what do you do? I'm a brain surgeon. Well, fuck you. I always wanted to be a brain surgeon. I mean, you know, it, it, it's stuff like that. You, you need somebody that says, I'm trying so hard and I'm not succeeding. And, and you know they're trying. Then that's a different thing. That's somebody, you know, and I've had people come to me and say, I, I just think I'm going to quit. I always say, yeah, go ahead and quit. Who cares? And then they go, well, wait a minute. And then before I know it, I've reversed them. I've got them back into wanting to do it. Because, you know, then, then because if, the fact that they want to do it, I know there's an ego there. And so I said, well, quit. Who, who cares? What, what, what loss is it going to be? And what, what are you saying? You know? And so sometimes you, and sometimes if you've been doing it a long time and, and some, some people are better at it, you understand people a little better. And you'd ask, you really didn't realize what they're really saying to you is this is really hard. I'm not getting any support. And then you have to tell them if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. It's not. That's you know, somebody, very true. Once, uh, I was talking about Blacktop Wasteland and I did an interview with somebody and I made the comment, well, anybody can do it. You know, I'm just a, you know, I'm a big old ashy knuckle boy from the Virginia lowlands. And uh, Walter Mosley, Walter Mosley was on this call and he told me, he was like, stop saying that. Stop saying that because not everybody right. can do it. Not everybody can do it. You did something remarkable and a lot of people want to do it, but not everybody can do it and stop taking that away from you. So, but see, that's, you know, I, I'm a lap Southern Baptist. So, you know, I, I got humility and humbleness beaten into me. So it's like hard for me to kind of take that with a grain of salt. But I think, I think yeah. that's true. I think, you know, the, the we're the storytellers, you know, and not everybody is a storyteller. And, and to what Joe was saying and, and what you were saying, Patrick, you know, math and science are very vital, but so are stories. Stories are how we communicate. Stories are how we express ourselves. Stories are how we achieve catharsis. And I think those stories are on the same level as, you know, discovering the, a black hole or, you know, you know Pygarium's theorem. And I think sometimes... Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Joe. That what's was what I was trying to get to. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, what's more powerful than our mythology? You know, we we are creating. Mm -hmm. Some of it will just be disappear, will disappear, go by the sides. That's just the way it works. But some of it, we're creating mythologies. And now, in in the way that things are going, now we're getting mythologies from other cultures being united with this culture, and that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, it's not supposed to just be any one mythology. It's supposed to be the time when we borrow from each other and create our own mythology. We're creating new mythology. And if you think of it like that, if you think of everything as like another approach to the Iliad or the Odyssey, or you I mean any kind of mythology, any kind of mythological story. I mean, we have the Western mythology. We have the Southern mythology. We have, but now what we've got is that we have tools that are brought in from other people say, yeah, but you know, we got, we got something here that you don't know about. And so now I learn about it. And so in some place that goes into my head and changes the way I see certain things and maybe the way I write certain things. I may still write about the same mythology I was writing about before, but my perspective may have changed. That's a, that's a great point. And what I've learned in the almost year I've been doing 
podcast this is uh like the 69th episode we've recorded i bring brennan and i have talked to people all over the world and just to go back to what you're saying joe um way back to the thing about history i only learned what i learned from people that taught me the way that they were taught probably i'm a i'm a you know very privileged middle class irish catholic boy i i don't have anything to uh grovel and complain about with my past I have a good childhood but that's not what everyone that's everyone doesn't have that and uh what what do i want and this is just me but as a father too like what do i want to leave my with when i pass what does my legacy what will it be it's my boy and if i have other kids that's the most important legacy you'll leave and uh is he going to be a good person? Is he going to be well accepted? Is he going to add? And once to, I'm kind of bouncing around. Once you have tools like we have, like we're all over this country right now. We're talking, we learn, we grow, we become one. Um, think about before we had this interconnected uh, technology, we still had a lot of missing information, but now we're piecing everything together. Um, I'm really just kind of parroting what you're, you said, Joe, but uh, I, I hope some of that was uh Turn well, some people's gears. You, you said something that I think, and, and that your legacy really, I think, is your children. Yes. And I, and I know that sounds trite and whatever, but I goddamn mean it. I mean, uh, my wife and I have invested our, our lives in our children. We love them dearly, and they came out better people than we are. And that's that's your that's your job. My parents were great. You know, that they did that. And, and, and But the other thing I would say is that when you write, you got to understand that you won't ever know about your legacy. If you're an atheist like me, when you die, you die. And it's not like I'm worrying about if somebody's reading uh, the magic wagon. And <laughs> but, but the point is, your legacy is while you're alive. It's the moment. It's not what's going to happen to you when you're dead. And it's not that whole idea, well, I can't, when I get to the end, you get to the end, you look up and you'll see a bunch of books on your shelf, but you better have somebody that loves you. And, and I think you better have somebody that you love or at least can remember somebody you loved or love because the books don't matter the same then. They matter because the mythology that you created matters to other people. But what I mean by that is that there's no telling. I mean, I, I grew up on certain books that no longer anybody reads. They're gone. If you go back and look at the bestseller list from 30, 20, 30 years ago, you'll look at it and go, who the hell was that? You know, and then you will find some people on there that, are going to be on there for a long time and have transformed beyond that. And then you'll find people that have never been on the bestseller list. You know, Ray Bradbury was never a bestseller. And yeah, you know, cause I didn't know that. that once. Yeah. The one time that I had lunch with him, he knew who I was and he invited me to lunch. And it was, a, it was another one of my Aussie Davis moments, you know, where I was <laughs> squeaky. And stuff. But, but uh, he said, you're like me, you're a long seller. And I thought about that, and that's true because my books from the very start, the same ones are still in print. Sometimes they go out, but they come back. They come in different forms sometimes, but they come back. But you know what? The day I die, my worth goes downhill as far as business goes, as far as product goes, because that's how the, the business, book companies think of us. We're products. So we got to have pride in ourselves, you know. You may find an editor that. Uh, catches you and knows what you're doing and, and sympathizes with you. But you have to understand that you've got to, that's why I always say you got to write like everybody you know is dead because you got to do it for you. And you're more likely to have something that might exist beyond. But the thing is, is if you, if you get, if you don't enjoy the moment and you don't enjoy the time when you're not writing, 
then you, you know you're missing out on all of life. And if you're sitting behind your desk all the time, you're not meeting people. I mean, now's a peculiar time, but you're not meeting. <laughs> you're not having different experiences. And you're and you know I, I do think there's there's too much where everybody now is on one side or the other. And if you're not in line with everything I think, I'm not interested in you. You know. And I mean, there's a line I'm going to draw. There's some people like are just plain assholes. That's all there is to it. But, yeah. but, the, but the point is, yeah, but the point is, is that you've got to live in the moment. You've got to be there when your kids are starting to walk. You got to be there when your kids have done something great at school. It's got to matter. And, and all of that's what makes the writing work is because you're not, you don't stink of the library, you know, and all your work doesn't stink of the library. And that's not a cut on libraries or reading. There's no more fanatic reader than I am. I'm an absolutely fanatic reader, but I don't miss out on those other things too, you know, because if, if that's where you get your fuel, that's where you get your information. Otherwise you're just writing, like I said, these things that, that, that have the stink of the library on them, you know? And you can, you could tell both your kids are very kind. Um, go ahead, Sean. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, buddy. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I just want to just, just jump on that and say three things real quick. Um, we've been having a really great conversation. Uh, Gabino says something at George Mason when we did that uh, presentation that stuck with me for years. It was a lady, a young girl in the audience, a young woman, excuse me, in the audience who said, you know, I don't have the time to write. I can't find the time to write. And he asked her, he said, well, you're in college. What do you what do you do? What are your what are your activities in college? And she said, well, I'm on the cheer squad and I'm in a, a sorority. He said, so you make time for the cheer squad. She's like, yeah. And he said, you make time for the sorority. And she said, yeah. And he said, well, you got to make time for the writing. And that's true. But to jump off of what Joe said, I don't live to write. I write to live. I write because I enjoy it and it makes me feel good. But I also write because I want to have an opportunity to have experiences in life. You know, I want to go on trips with my wife. I want to drink whiskey with my friends. I want to go. I want to go hunting with my with my with my brother. I want to you know spend time with my best friend at a at a monster truck pool. And so writing is just one aspect of my life. But that being said, it's the thing that gives me great joy. And I'll, I'll say one thing. I hark back. To, the third thing I'll say. Hark back to what we were saying earlier. I grew up dirt floor poor. Seriously, we didn't have two red nickels to rub together. And I didn't have indoor plumbing until I was 16. I lived in a house with my mom, my grandfather, my uncle, my brother, my cousin. We had uh, uh, my great uncle that lived with us. When we used to hunt, we didn't hunt for sport. We hunted because we needed food for the winter. And so writing and rejections, that's, that's you know, getting a rejection hurts, but it's easy compared to taking a shit in an outhouse in the middle of winter. And oh, I yeah, think you got to kind of put that in perspective. You got to kind of put that in perspective. I had running, I had plumbing most of my time, but I, I have had that experience. But when we, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a hunter in the sense of that I go out to hunt. I don't enjoy killing anything. And people say, well, you know, I'm going out there and I'm in the woods, but I see their eyes light up when they shoot something. And my dad told me when we would yeah. go out and shoot squirrels, you know, to eat. He said, now, if you ever start liking to watch that squirrel fall, you sit down on that log right there and you have a talk with yourself because you're killing something. And he said, we have to eat it. And that's why we're doing it. Now, we we probably wouldn't have starved had we not wow. done it because we had pennies and cornbread. But 
we wanted some meat and we wanted some other food. So we fished and we hunted squirrel. We didn't hunt any other kind of animal. And so we would do that. And my dad would never kill more than what he thought we needed, or he, he would kill for some other people who were poorer than us and bring those squirrels to them because he knew that they were going to eat them. But he always told me it's not a sport unless they're shooting back. And uh, the thing is, yeah. is that, you know, it's not like we get team jerseys and stuff. And, and so, you know, to me, <laughs> those were, but, but those are experiences. Those are the things that go into the writing. Those are the things about growing up that go into the writing, the things that, you know, I've had so much fun with my kids that they're both older. They're, they're writers and my daughter's a, a singer and, you know, she's, She's doing producing. She does audio books and, and, you know, she's like Gabino. She's all over the fucking place. You know, she's doing all this stuff. And, and I, I thought I did a lot, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, my son's writing novels and screenplays. He's had two films made and all of that stuff though, is not just that they did it, but that you can enjoy that they did it and that you can, you know, embrace what they have accomplished because that's so important. And it, it makes you, uh, I don't know if it makes you a better person. I hope it does, but it certainly makes you somebody that when you sit down to write, you know what it's like to have a soul, you know, you know what it's like to feel for others. And, and when you write bad guys, you have to know they may be bad guys, but they've got, they, you know, Hitler like dogs. <laughs> I'd like to hear <laughs> I'd like to hear from Gabino or Cena. I haven't heard from you guys in a little while. I'm sorry. I was talking no, I'm, to you. Really oh, God, no, 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 no. You can talk all day, Joe. I just want to, but we're coming up on two hours. So I just wanted to make sure we hear from them before we have to call it a night. I'll let Gabino. Yeah, I'm going to have to run off on all fours in a minute. I've got to go uh, uh, feed my, well, not feed, but put my, he gets treats, my pit bull. And I always make sure that he gets his treats at a certain time because it makes him happy and he's spoiled rotten. And uh, <laughs> my wife probably wants to see me probably a little bit, at least, you know, before we call in the dogs for the night. So I'm going to have to go guys. Thank but you, I Joe. Really enjoyed I'm so impressed so much. With, the, with what you guys are doing. And I'm so impressed that there's this another generation. Cause what I'm always scared of is, you know, I have people I know that they can't stand the younger generation coming up and doing this. And sometimes I, you know, I, there's something. Wow, well, there's damn kick it off my lawn, goddamn. But but there's a there is a part of that though that if you don't have people coming up behind you, this disappears. We have to keep it alive. So feed the beast, and I'll talk to you all another time. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for your time. You bet. Bye, guys. All right, so Cena. Uh, can we hear from you, please? What am I saying? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. I thought you're smarter than me. I thought you were going to just pick it up. Uh, Gabino, you got anything? <laughs> Words of wisdom. I have a question for Cena. Go ahead. I, I you're the guest know, host. I want to know. Oh, I just got a question for Cena or Gabino. Um, do you feel like you know, your Latinx background and, you know, you being from growing up in Chicago and, and Gabino growing up down in Texas on, um, do you ever feel any geographical dissonance? Like do people who are of a Latinx background in other part of the country, do you feel any separation from them or do you feel a camaraderie? And in that camaraderie, when you're writing, 
since we're talking about rejections, do you feel like there's a certain level of responsibility you have to represent the whole Latinx experience or just your experience as a Latinx person from Chicago or a Latinx person from Texas? Oh, I can answer quick, but well, I'll try to be quick, but um, <laughs> I, I think I can only write, my husband's Mexican, so I've written Mexican protagonists, so my children are Mexican, Puerto Rican, uh, so I've written uh, from a Mexican perspective and from a Puerto Rican perspective, and my characters, I've written white, black, um, of diverse line of characters, but I've always written a, from Chicago, unless it's a strange horror story but in terms of like my crime stories that they're based they tend to be based more in Chicago it's just my home and Chicago to me is always like one of my main characters and I do recognize that there certainly is a different there is a completely different experience um for Gabino in Austin and for Latinx communities in New York or Los Angeles and even the media that we've consumed that portray Latinx, they tend to weight heavily either on the East Coast or the West Coast. So it's for me, it's always been personal just to um, write from Chicago and our my experiences here. And because there is definitely like a lack of representation, I think, in media of like the Midwestern Hispanic perspective. So that's always been important to me. And I'm always trying to be cognizant of the greater Latinx um, community and being respectful of them and their voices and making sure that I'm not saying blanket statements about the community because it is so diverse. So that's one thing that I've been careful to, to, to keep in mind. So the, uh, uh, this is part of what I teach at SNHU and, and I teach a workshop on otherness I love that we have this, instead of saying raza, like we have this Latinx thing <laughs> that we can, we can sort of, uh, uh, you know, share a whole bunch of commonalities and, and, and talk about, you know, same things that we see reflected in, in the positionality of, of a lot of different people. It's the same thing for me when I hear uh, it's a POC, it's, it's a woman of color. Well, what, what color are we talking about and how much money does she have in her bank? Because <laughs> that's a, a whole different story. So when I moved here, uh, I grew up in the Caribbean. So when I moved here 14 years ago, uh, there, I, I, Latinx wasn't a thing. So as it started forming, I, I've had a chance to look at it. And, and I'm all for it because representation matters. But it's like when, when one of my white students comes up with a story because they want to show the black experience. I'm like, uh, my, my black friends back home who don't speak English, my Jamaican friends here in Austin who are always asked if they're Nigerian, uh, my Nigerian friends from the University of Texas at Austin who always get asked where their accent is from, uh, the black dude from, from the Bronx uh, with Puerto Rican parents, uh, a black dude from who's a preacher in Georgia, a black, a black woman living in a ghetto in Detroit, what is the black experience? And we can talk about racism, but uh, there is no black experience. There is a whole bunch of uh, diverse experiences from folks who are Latinx or who are black or who are uh, LGBTQ or who are neurodivergent. And then within those things, my friends are, are Latinx, blacks, and some of them might be gay too. 
to, you know, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should ever feel that responsibility to try to grab that whole thing and put it into our stories. What we can do is like, first of all, I always ask myself, why the fuck am I telling this story? <laughs> what am I getting out of this? What are my readers going to get out of this? What's, what's the world at large going to get out of this? And it's fine. As, as Joe was saying, sometimes you just want to entertain or scare or make somebody gag. Uh, that's I'm fine with that. Um, but but you have to ask yourself those those questions. And once you start thinking about those answers, what comes out? You were talking about my darkest prayer and, and, and you felt the need to tell that story. You were saying, like, I don't care if anybody wants to buy it. I need to tell this story right now in my life. Uh, and you did. Uh, and, and you were you were you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the overnight success thing. I think people tend to forget that they they see you when the book is out, but you were the same motherfucker who wrote it, and <laughs> and nobody knew that book because you were writing it. <laughs> so it's it's not overnight. You you didn't write the book in one day and then your career exploded. It's it's a whole damn process. Um, I I can't ask you to represent you know all black Appalachians. It's it's not fair. Uh, but I can see a little bit of that in your work and be like, all right, so if you want a really good example, go here and read this. You won't understand the whole thing because every human is a universe and, and every chunk of otherness uh, contains multiple universes. Uh, but this mm -hmm. is a great place, place to start. And in, in, in the level that we can do that with our fiction, I'm, I'm all for it. And that's why it's Spanglish and it's, you know, it's, it's poor people and, and, uh, I'm going to keep writing about that because we're not done telling all those stories yet. Can I, can I tell y'all a funny rejection story real quick? We've been talking for a long time and <laughs> like Jill, I'm going to a little bit, but my, when I sent darkest per out the first time, I got two types of rejections. I got the, it's too black rejection. And I got the, it's not black enough rejection. And the it's not black enough rejection was predicated on it doesn't take place in New York or Philly. It doesn't talk about the drug game. It doesn't talk about drug dealing. The protagonist is sort of a hero. And oh, wait, the what? two black. Yeah, yeah. The two black rejection was predicated on. I don't understand a lot of the colloquialisms here. I don't understand a lot of the 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 uh, uh, internal discussions here and i remember getting those letters man like joe i, I got like 83 rejection emails and i lost an agent behind that book i got an agent with that book and then i lost an agent that i will not name here and like to what cabino's point is there's sometimes when you're a writer of color and i'm sure cena can talk to this as cabino has spoken to it you're sometimes the the responsibility for speaking for your race is foisted upon you It's like, well, give us the black perspective. Give us the black experience. I'm a Southerner from Virginia. I don't have the same experience as a black kid from Chicago or a black kid from New York or a black kid from Texas or a black kid from J Jamaica or a Haitian black kid from Haiti. I can only give you the experience of the people I grew up with in this small Southern town of Virginia that I, I, I was proud to call my home. And so when I get those kind of, I got those kind of rejections It depressed me a little bit, but to go back to our previous statement, it also kind of pissed me off a little bit. It's like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep writing this 
And I'm going to keep throwing this at the wall and eventually it's going to fucking stick because I feel like this is something that's potent. I feel like this is something that's important. Just like, you know, Cena's experience as a Latinx in the Midwest. So just like Abino's experience as somebody from the Caribbean Latinx growing up in the Caribbean and coming to Texas. And I think to sum it all up, back to the thing about rejection, I think we all have to realize there's always going to be, excuse my language, there's always going to be a motherfucker out there that's hating. There's always going to be a motherfucker out there that don't like what you're doing. There's always going to be a motherfucker out there that's going to call into question your ability. But on the flip side of that, there's also going to be somebody who thinks that your shit is fucking awesome. There's going to be somebody that thinks that you poop sunshine and vomit rainbows. And you've <laughs> got to kind of find that middle ground and, and live in that middle ground. And that's what helps keep me on, on an even keel. You know, you talked about Blacktop Wasteland. It's got a movie deal. Razorblade Tears got a movie deal. And that's great. Don't get me wrong. That's wonderful. I'm very fortunate that I don't have to count pennies for gas money anymore. But that being said, I also know I'm still the same kid, you know, that uh, my mom used to have to cuff upside the head because I snuck out the window at night. I'm the same guy that, you know, was kind of a, a nerd in high school. And so that those rejections in the past and the rejection that I received today help keep me grounded. And, you know, you as a writer, I think you have to, again, I said it earlier, you have to border on humility and you have to come right up to the line of arrogance. Because like Joe said, not everybody can do what we do. You got to keep that in mind. So, and oh, I also am going to have to leave. So th- thank you, Sean. I was just going to wrap up and say, um, if you guys can plug what you're coming out with, Sean, if you don't have time for that, not a problem. No, no, I got time. I got time. I'm going to let Cena and Gabino go first. Okay. Children of Chicago, February 9th. It's available for pre-order right now. Who's it through? <laughs> Polis Agora Press. So and I, I'm new to, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You can find it at any of your favorite booksellers. So uh, I love this book. If there was a book that described who I am and the story I want to tell, it's this book. So I'd love if you read it. I'm very excited for, I just want to say I'm new to Paul, uh, Polis, Polis, did I say right? Yeah. I'm new to them. I know that Cabino's got an anthology through them. Cena's got one through them. Um, there's also uh, Eric Pruitt, Sean, one of Sean's, well, Sean's best friend. Th- th- just check them out. Google them. Look at their uh, authors. It's on, it's, if you like crime fiction, Townies. that is, what's that? Townies. Get oh, that. I got Dirtbag. Uh, yeah. Dirtbag's by Eric too. Pruitt. He, Eric suggested it because I said, what do I start out with for you? But uh, Cabino, what do you got to plug, sir? Uh, you know what? I'm still working on that second round of edits. I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to plug uh, Children of Chicago, which I started reading yesterday. Uh, Polis has great distribution. So, yes, it will be available everywhere. Uh, go read uh, Mr. Cosby's Black Tub Wazen. And I have a blurb because I'm, I'm a big believer in, in going to the past, grabbing negative shit and turning it into a positive. So as you were talking, Sean, I have the best blurb for you, man. Sean Cosby is the blackest motherfucker in the crime game. <laughs> Unless that makes you uncomfortable. In which case, he ain't black enough. <laughs> you can read that book either way. I'm getting a t-shirt with that on the front and the last statement on the back. Um, I'm going to plug a couple of people that I really, really respect and then I'll talk about myself really quick. 
Um, my friend Yasmin Alcindor just got just announced that her book, uh, She Was a Knight, is coming out. It's about an, an African assassin who uh, moves to America to do her latest uh, job, and she falls in love with somebody on the right side of the law. Yasmin is an incredible writer. She was a recipient of the Eleanor Bland Award from System of Crime, so please check her out on Twitter and on Facebook. She's all over social media. She's my sister from another mister, and I love her to death. As you said, Eric Pruitt, uh, Eric Pruitt is an incredible writer and filmmaker out of uh, North Carolina, originally from East Texas. Uh, counties, dirtbags, hashtag, and what we reckon. What we reckon is what Jim Thompson would have written if he had a sense of humor. So please get that book. Um, Kelly Garrett is the author of the Detective by Day series. Um, there's two books in that series. Uh, check those books out. They're incredible. They're fun, cozy, black girl magic uh, mysteries that I love. Um, and then I'll you know, speak about myself. Uh, Black Cop Wasteland is out, of course, in in July twenty uh, first in twenty twenty one. Razor Blade Tears will be coming out. Uh, quick elevator pitch: Razor Blade Tears is the story of two fathers, one black, one white, both ex cons who join forces to uh, get revenge for their murdered gay sons who were killed the day after they got married. And in their uh, quest for vengeance, they also seek redemption because neither one of them accepted their son's sexuality. So they're trying to find uh, vengeance for the sons, but also become better people in the process. So that's what I got coming out. I want to thank you guys for having me. This was so much effing fun. I don't know why I said effing because we've been cursing all night, but it was so much fun. And I really appreciate it. Gabino, my brother, it's so good seeing you. I can't wait till we see each other in person again. And Cena, it was so great having a chance to speak with you. I would love to meet you in person well. Sean, where can people follow you real quick? Oh, uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, Black Lion King seventy three. I'm re- if you think I'm wild on this uh, episode, I talk a lot of mad shit on Twitter. So please follow me on Twitter. I say a lot of crazy stuff. I have no filter on Twitter. My Facebook page is S A Cosby, which is way more professional. But my Twitter is Fury Road. So follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Sean S A Cosby, everyone. He's either black or not black enough. Thank you, Sean, for your time, sir. Thank you guys. I love you guys. Be well. I got you, man. Now, Gabino, where can people follow you? Uh, I, I've been known to uh, partake of the Twitters as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gabino underscore Iglesias, because some guy with a with an egghead had stolen Gabino Iglesias from me. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, go fan me there. Uh, I'll be probably tweeting about punching Stephen Miller in the face or some shit. And for Somebody's those, gotta do it. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> and, and Gabino started a fun thing where he uh, blurbs people now. I, I've seen it a few times. So, uh, Cena, where can people follow you? On Twitter, Cena Palayo. At Instagram, Cena Palayo author. And my website, CenaPalayo.com. And I would like to um, just pump out one, uh, one little ad. It's super quick for those video listeners or video watchers uh can see it but for audio listeners i'm wearing a shirt that says black hills press it is by uh, shane hawk he is uh in one of my circles and uh, i think gabino's and uh brennan's too you're gonna know his name if you don't know it right now he's gonna be all over the place he's fucking amazing as a writer great person um brennan you got anything to plug because that's all i had to plug today 
No, I would just say like the amount of collective talent that we had on this uh, episode tonight, you know, Patrick, I know I can speak for you real honor to have uh, everybody give us more than two hours of their time tonight. So thank you, Cena. Thank you, Gabino. And uh, thank you, Sean and Joe as well. Really, really excellent discussion. I can't believe you all said yes. Yeah. I have. <laughs> I think I can speak for Brennan, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, for on this, me and him, we have a lot of respect and love for you guys. You guys help motivate us, so thank you for that, listeners. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you did not listen to last week's episode, it was with Ramsey Campbell. He's one of the most, well, probably the most well-established authors, most awards, and uh, think any living author. And uh, you can catch next week's show with Richard Chismar. He is in charge of uh, Cemetery Dance, and he is one of the co-authors with uh, Stephen King. So kind of a big deal. He's a pretty great guy. Thank you for listening. Gabino, Cena, Joe, and Sean Cosby, along with my partner in crime, Brandon LaFaro. Have a good one, everyone. Good night. Have a good weekend. Deadhead space. Hey, hey. What's going on, buddy? Man, look at all these beautiful people. See, oh. I get to see you. <laughs> get to see you, Mom. How are you? Joe, long time no see, man. Yeah, man. How you do? <laughs> you thought, aren't you supposed I, to be the one at the book and taco stand tonight when this my night off? <laughs> <laughs> I think the uh, the dog's running the show tonight. <laughs> right, right. He, Actually, we got this thing started on Twitter where we had the book and taco stand, so... You know, I really think that people would go there. <laughs> I, I'm a hundred percent. Probably sure. would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why we don't have that. You know, okay. come to think of it, you're right. We need that. I, I think Joe travels too. I mean, not now, but usually he travels too much. Uh, you you can't sell tacos in Texas if you're in Italy selling books. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, I'm all might be a situation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, strangely enough, I've I've actually, you know, for all the negative things, one thing I have been positive for me is being able to stay home. I've enjoyed it. I uh, haven't been traveling and, uh, you know, I work at home anyway, so it's not a yeah. big change. We live out in the country, so I don't, you know, normally see people unless I, we drive to town. We go to town, as we say. And uh, it's, uh, you know, 32,000, pretty big town, but not a giant town, but pretty big for East Texas. There are a few bigger, but for me, it's been really, I don't know, very nice for the most part. And I, I just, I think just recently I have begun to get a little cabin fever. I mean, I go to the bookstore now and again, cause they let you in four at a time. You wear your mask, you know, you go in and you can, and, and so I, I go there to buy books now and again, and I go to the store to buy food now and again. But other than that, this is where I am. That's in it. The, in the <laughs> My wife and I just hang out, and our pit bull hangs out with us, so it's not bad at all. Have you found it more um, – it's weird to phrase it this way, but has it been any change for you with your writing habit, or is it pretty much the same? I write exactly the same way. I get up, write three hours a day. I never write more than three hours a day. And um, as soon as I get up, I usually have you know bring the coffee upstairs, and I sit here and – have a coffee, need a piece of toast, and then check the email, and uh, then I start writing. 
And uh, uh, for me, uh, that has all stayed exactly the same. Because I, like I said, when I get through with that three hours, then, uh, you know, I'm not working out as much as I should. I've been lazier than I should. But I do do that four or five times a week. And I, I watch movies and books. And I can't do my martial arts classes because for the obvious reason. So yeah. we've had to cancel those. But my, my students, you know, they keep in touch with me. So we have uh, martial arts without martial arts classes. I think Alan Baxter does that too. I don't know if you've talked with him, but uh, I'm pretty sure he teaches uh, virtually as well. Yeah. Well, I'm not even teaching virtually. We just, I was doing only private classes. Oh, okay. So we just, uh, we decided just to delay them until uh, we start back. Hmm. This is Joe's one of the most humble guys in the biz. Uh, I have no doubt. uh, Alan Baxter is a, is a hell of a teacher. Yeah. Uh, Joe's a Joe's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> it's it's he's one of those guys that when you're approaching and you want to shake his hand, be careful because you don't want him to grab the hand the wrong way. Uh, so just make make sure you keep it straight and you keep it you know keep your eyes on it. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> that's kind of sad, man. Because I know I know how much you love it. I know how long I do. This is my fifty eighth so. year. Yeah, I, I have the last. Well, yeah, this year. But last year I had to spend my 57th year mostly, you know, at home, not doing it. I like I said, I do my own workouts and stuff. It's, you know, it's different. I'm a few months off seven yeah. years old, so I work. You, you don't get to throw people around. <laughs> I sure can, yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be back to it pretty soon. It's kind of me showing. Hey, hey, what's up, Sean? Hey. What's up, everybody? <laughs> That's hey, really Sean. Man right there. I'm drinking whiskey, so I regret nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's get started. See how you feel tomorrow, man. <laughs> <laughs>